This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out onto Locust Walk here at the University of Pennsylvania on a warm, late summer morning. Humid. Good, warm and humid, humid, Adi Weiner adds. Adi, my I buddy can, and yeah. colleague from the Stats Department, along with Shane Jensen, another buddy and colleague from the Stats Hello. Department. Good morning, guys. How are y'all? Excellent. How are you doing? Doing fine. Doing fine. This is Cade Massey going to be hosting this morning with these guys. Eric is out and about. You can join the conversation. Jump in here. Give us a ring. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or drop us an email. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or add us on Twitter. Our handle there is at WMoneyBall. We'll take your questions Observations. We'll take suggestions for over under there again. Twitter handle at WMoneyBall. We have a regular program this week. We have a guest at the bottom of this hour and the top of the next hour. We have open lines, open conversation in the first quarter and in the last quarter. So guys, open open things up now. I'm curious. There's there's kind of a lot going on in sports now. It's kind of warming up now. I'm curious what's caught your eye. There is a lot going on, and I know we have uh, tennis. Coming up, the U.S. Open, we have a guest in our second quarter on tennis and, and some football. I know you guys are raring to talk about it, but I just yeah, want yeah. to point out that the Red Sox have lost three in a row, and the Yankees have won three in a row, and the Yankees <laughs> are still eight games behind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not feeling comfortable about that. I'll Chris be Hale honest on the with DL. you. They're better eight yeah. games ahead still than less than that. How, how many three-game stretches, how many three-game streaks of losses have the Sox had this year? Actually, not that many. I, I, this they, they they've been good about not doing that. But I mean, it, 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 it happens. To, it happens to every baseball team, of course, multiple times every year. But they started off uh, with a with a pretty bad start, and the Yankees flew in the beginning. And, it's true, and and then it's just been just rock and roll ever since. So mm-hmm. I don't think they've lost three games since the beginning of the season. How many games do we have left in this baseball season? We have about six weeks left, something like that. five weeks. So five, we're at uh, about thirty five games more. Yeah. Okay. So and the Yankees and Red Sox play each other, I think, six more games. So there's a lot of opportunity to make up ground if, if the Yankees were to make a run, the Red Sox were. Right, but they're both culture. looking a little bit hurt. I mean, the Yankees uh, just lost. Uh, I mean, Sanchez has been out. Judge is still out. And he's not. doesn't look like he's coming back anytime yeah. soon. I mean, we're trying hard to make any kind of compelling race out of the American League when really all the exciting stuff's happening in the National League right now. Right. right. Although um, you got the Houston Athletics. I mean, Houston, Houston Athletics. The Houston Astros and the Astros and the Oakland Athletics raring at each other. Yeah, that's, that's true. An, Actually, that's, that's true. That, that's, that, that, that's a race we didn't think we would have. No, no one um, thought the Oakland A's would be uh, yeah, doing I what I think the Oakland A's are definitely one of the most interesting sort of surprise teams of of, of this particular year. They are literally tied right now. Now, the projections say that the Astros are the better team. People think that the A's have been kind of squeaking by. Well, I mean, you can even sort of see that squeak in the standings and that the Astros have over twice the run differential. That's of right. the athletics, even though they have the that's same a, record, that's right? A big difference. Uh, that's a huge difference, and I mean, you ca- you've seen that. It's not that's not his unprecedented historically. Um, 
you know, teams can kind of consistently over the course of a season or even over the course of a decade yeah. outperform their sort of Pythagorean, you know, yeah. win predictions based on run differential. I, and usually, at, at least whenever I've noticed this, it seems like the explanation is bullpen. Usually. So you know, like, like when you, you lose- see a team that is outperforming kind of its run expectation. It's really because it's somehow disproportionately closing out those narrow right. wins at the end of a game and stuff like that. You know, I, I sort of I mentioned historically because say it, come on, yeah, mention I his mean, name. No, Mariano Rivera. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, like the Yankees outperformed the outperformed the run differential for about a decade, like every season for about a decade in like the early two thousands. Yeah. That would make that would make calculating his value, or I guess, a calculating closer's value, seemingly. It's hard to do. Well, it's more straightforward. You would. It demonstrates value more clearly. Right. I mean, I mean, if if you were to attribute the entire residual, right. say for example, of of you know, that's like right. you know, from their hard to do, but yeah, you know, to to the, one guy, that that's the closest I think we could come to doing it because yeah. closers really was, are, are tough to value, yeah. and uh, and so traditionally, the Hall of Fame has undervalued the closer. It hasn't they haven't given them the credit they, they that many people feel they deserve because their innings are so small, and but they're very high leverage. And the difference between a guy who just never fails and one who fails the normal amount, yeah. the normal amount of of blown saves is about five, five out five of, saves out of about fifty 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 five opportunities, so in, about a ten percent in the course of a season. Okay, and you know a guy like Rivera might fail once in the entire season. And that's so. So I did a simulation. It was a very simple simulation. I still even think like only failing five in an entire season is a pretty. It's a pretty good. That's that's that's, 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 a, that's, that's, a, that's a medium a, professional level closer. That's really? like the fifteenth. Really? Wow. Or, or maybe even better. All I yeah, did was I, so I just did a simulation. I thought these are very yeah. simple things to calculations to do. I took the box scores and I popped in. I looked at any time the, the closer would be coming in the game and. Uh, which is basically Which is what basically tie game ninth inning. This is the standard rules. Now these things are getting ripped apart like crazy, and no one's using them okay, anymore. Historically, Which is historically good, the actually, standard rules are ninth inning only, tie game, or three run leads or or, or less. Or less. So yeah. zero, one, two, or three, and not four. Then you bring in someone else. Uh, not in the ninth inning, you bring someone else. And so if you swap out uh, what I would call the flawless closer, someone who the immaculate closer, just who always takes that ninth inning opportunity and never gives up a run. Yeah. You on average not win a about run. never gives, gives up, up a anything, loss. anything, nothing. No, actually, never gives it. All you get is a zero in that in that ninth inning, and then if the, if it's still that's tied, it plays out. That's, that's the, the standard, immaculate. That's the gold the, standard. That's okay. the gold standard, and that adds four to four to five wins over the average team. If you do that for every team over twenty years, mm. pop zeros in the, in this particular situation, and then roll the dice on Are every there other any, situation. Any restrictions on? How often you could use a guy? No, like so I didn't do that. So that's why once per game, right? Right, once per game. So there are they won't but do so this really, four in a row. They, did they ever give him a day off? Sure. Oh yeah. No, I, I mean almost any team. I mean any team, even if they've gotten a league closer, and even if there's no injury rule issue. I mean, you're not going to pitch that guy more than a couple games in a row. Two or three even games though in a row. he's only throwing one. That's inning. right. Three, three would be yeah, the max, right. and they would because you would... throw a lot of pitches during warm up. I mean, I'm sure Rick Peterson, if he was on, would tell us all about how you can't cycle up and down a pitcher like every night like that. Right, I think, right, um, right. or at least okay. I'm, I'm inferring that you can't do that because teams give their close, even That's though they're right. only pitching. Is there any? Is there any position in professional sports where a more important contribution is made with less actual game time? Kicker. Kicker, kicker, field goal kicker, okay. I would guess, right? Yeah. Come on. Okay. This is your. Right, right, but right. think about what's happening with. Same the, sort of thing. You're a finisher. <laughs> You're a finisher. What's happening with baseball is they're really moving to an enormous number of relief pitchers and using them at, mm-hmm. at an incredible pace. The, the starters are averaging less and less time. Yeah. Relievers- it's actually one of the rules. Have you sort of heard about, like, I mean, because we were sort of. 
I've been sort of reading a lot over the last couple of weeks. Um, and there's been a sort of a, a, a whole bunch of articles coming out about how, like, you know, they've been talking to all-time greats of baseball about how yeah. the game's kind of boring right now. Yeah, this Bleacher you know? Report article you said. Yeah, and I mean, like, you know, I mean, I hate to be on the same side as any issue as uh, of as any issue as Pete, as, as Pete Rose specifically. He uh, had a Goose big... Gossage comes off really... Well, those guys, I mean, Goose Gossage. I loved him as a kid, but ooh, good. That guy no, knows how to complain, as it turns out. <laughs> well, he was part of the... And uh, he's, he's taking it. Yeah, Bronx I mean, that's, that, that's what he's been working on in his retirement, is being so, carmudgeony. So, so tell me what Hall was... Hall of Fame of carmudgeony. <laughs> what's, the, what's the big beef? Well, I mean, it, basically... There's 14 that, of them. That there, there's almost no action. Yeah. And I mean, by action... We really mean that there's not a lot of balls in play. I mean, it, it's fewer, basically we, we've, fewer balls in play than historically. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's, it's <laughs> um, you know, I, the, the the game has sort of evolved where at least hitters are are, are kind of focused on these sort of out, you know, basically a disproportionate number of at bats right. and in either a strikeout, well, a walk, look, look, or a home we're run. Looking, right. Are we looking at more strikeouts than hits for the first? Time yeah, right no, I mean, it really, baseball. I mean, it's it is historically unprecedented what's happening. Um. And, you know, part some of the things that, you know, people sort of feel have led to this is potentially the ball being juiced. That's that's not an official one. That's not one the MLB has, has admitted to. But they blame to. us, I think. Um, they, they, and it's they blame analytics because, yeah. you know. That's a weird, isn't it weird. Well, I mean, take it as a compliment. <laughs> Apparently, analytics, like, you know, there was such a, a revolution with regards to, say, for example, fielding. Yeah, the shift, for sure. Estimating for fielding sure. And, and, and the shift. That that's really taken a lot of balls and play away from hitters. So how do you get ri- how do you eliminate yeah. you know or how do you overcome the shift? You either you you hit a bomb or you strike out. So I've been watching a lot of baseball in the last couple in the last week, last couple yeah. weeks. I went to a Yankee game with my unusual. family. Unusual, it's not watch. unusual. Yeah. I always watch a lot. But my son is now home from from uh, on intercession, and he and I love to watch baseball together. Okay. So and you had some time at the beach, and I had some time at the beach. I love to put it on on the radio. It's a great thing. Yep. Um, so I, I so first of all, I went to Yankee Stadium, and the observation was it's a slow game. It's slower than ever. Uh-huh. It and was slow to begin with. It Was slow to begin with. But the games used to take uh, an average game was between two hours and twenty minutes and two hours and thirty minutes. Now it's three hours, and a lot of that time has come from the the relief pitchers moving in and out. Strikeouts take a lot longer, by the way, than balls in play. Yeah, yeah that's another factor. And also, there seem to be endless amount of time taken by the pitcher and the batter. And I think it's ironic it, because they've actually put clocks in in the last couple because of years, trying to, to, but they don't they don't, seem they to don't enforce it. it at all. So the, oh, really? I think that's, that's so. There's a countdown clock when the yeah. pitcher's warming up, but then it goes to zero and nothing happens. Nothing happens. But also, right? there's 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 this there's this this great. Uh, all right. There's always uh, someone's he's always fidgeting with a rosin bag behind. He's walking around. The batter's always coming in and out, adjusting yeah. their adjusting their gloves. But it's it's a slow paced game. They just don't go in there and and and, and they're actually they've done this. They've looked very carefully on average. What's the time between pitches? And it's a lot longer now than it used to be, and that makes the game slower. But the observation I made yesterday I was watching the, the Yankees were, were, were uh, Yankees were, were playing um, the Marlins, and the Marlins are not a good team. And there was a, it was a very close game. The Yankees won an eleven two to one, and the Marlins hitters, who are not particularly distinguished in any way, are just swinging for the fences on every. How, how do you know this? Because you how can you see it? the way they, they the, the bat is swung. I mean, this was back in the, the old days. I can see it. In guys like Reggie later. Jackson would do this. They'd swing as hard as they could in every at bat. But see. the vast majority of players had what had what what, what might have been called a, a two strike approach yeah. or a way to a contact or get the ball in play approach. And now every hitter seems to be swinging for the, the fences on every count. And that's and, what, uh, that's uh, strikeouts. Uh, uh, no, that's right. And I, and I think it. I, I'm not sure whether the MLB actually has to step in and change somehow. No. 
the rules of the game. I think it just has – we're out of equilibrium right now. We're, yeah, we're not in equilibrium. The, game, the hitters the, will adjust to this. But in what way? So like – Well, the, 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 they'll, they'll become – I mean this whole swinging for the fences thing – um, there's probably going to be a new generation of hitters that come up that are are, are basically back to kind of like let's, slapping, yeah, like like kind of Ichiro Suzuki style, like do whatever you can to get the ball in play, even I mean shorten your swing or like choking up or whatever. Because but, I, you, they have interviewed people like Chipper Jones, etc., that are like, I wish the defensive shift was around when I was playing because I would just have hit away from it. Yeah. Like we, but, we, but if that were the case, wouldn't we already be seeing? Because what what we're hearing is that the analytics guy said, "No, no, no, don't hit away, hit over." Yeah, the yeah. analytics answer so far has been hit over it. Yeah, okay. and because I, but, you don't have the skill. That's why they make. That, I mean, you that need, these things have to come okay, in waves. Like I think, I think you need a yeah, yeah exactly. I think bunch. you need a right. I mean, they can't slap the other way. All they can do is, and and they're right. They're absolutely right. But I have to say, you know, it's funny. So I'm going to – so um, uh, Jason Wirth went, went on a tear about analytics, and, and he's just retired. And he's just talked about how, you know, it's ridiculous that, what, what, with the shift. He was really complaining about the shifts. Yeah. But the answer to the shifts is bunt, and they refuse to do it. Yeah. You know, they're going to have to learn how to do the, They have to bring back these skills. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll. I think it'll. There'll be an equilibrium. It'll turn around. It's not unexciting if you take a look at the standings, particularly in the national. Well, yeah. League. Let's talk about something that is more exciting, which is the National League playoff race. So, yeah. well, the Nationals is, have essentially punted. That's the big news. Yeah, because they traded away. They a traded guys. away this Daniel week. Murphy this week. Well, they're seven and a half. Yeah, hasn't really been much of a contributor this year, anyway. But um, they're, but yeah. basi- they're basically what is that? They're like ninth in the standings in the in the national. Right, so they, they have are, a lot of players, teams to jump over. Yeah, and so that they, makes it almost impossible. So they decide, yeah, because one team may fall, but unlikely that four. That's right. Mm-hmm. So they they got out, and the other one kind of on the margin. The the Pirates are, are about the same length back, and the Giants are about the same length That's back. Right. So you could exclude them, but we still have eight teams. Yeah, and I mean, I I think it's sort of I, I mean some of the, the big surprise basically is that the Dodgers are really a ways back now. I mean, I mean they're 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 still within contention. They're games. not about to sell, but and, they have a lot of teams to jump to. And the, Kershaw seems to have reemerged as a defining force in the game. He came back at the end of June. Since then, his ERA has been two point four. Mm-hmm. What about their uh, is their in, their infielder with the big stick? That third base, second base, Machado? No, 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 no. Well, they traded for Turner. Yeah, where is he back from injury yet? So he was brutal in the playoffs yeah. last year. Yeah. Well, um, they have a terrific team when they're all when they're all rep, you know revved up and firing. It's a uh, it's a it's a tough team to beat, particularly with a, a staff that includes Kershaw at his tops. You know, he is here's a stat I learned about Kershaw yesterday. Every single season, he's lowered his ERA, his career ERA. Oh, really? He's he's, he's oh, monotonically really? that's the word for it. <laughs> wow. Everyone monotonically without changing direction. That's always awesome. going as down if he every wasn't year. Great enough. <laughs> as if he awesome wasn't great. Here. Now he spends a lot of time in the DL every season. Yeah. Yeah, that, I, and that's really what kind of infects, uh, uh, unfortunately, is like some of these cumulative statistics. How yeah. many starts is he getting a year? Well, a fully season these days is 33 starts. A good season for Kershaw seems to be around 21, 22. Yeah. A typical okay. season for okay. Kershaw. Okay, so I think the other big stories here are that the Cubs are in a fight for their life. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. the super talented. They still, just picked up Murphy. They got Murphy. They got the Murphy. Okay. I mean, they're they're making a play, and the other big story is the Phillies are still in it. Yeah, unbelievable! Two games unbelievable. back in the East, and still in easy there. to get tickets. And here two games Philly, behind everyone. the Braves. These are the teams, at least I, th- I thought, thought would be the bottom two teams in mm-hmm. the um, NL East this yeah. year. So the NL East standings are basically um, all mixed up. What, relative what do you want to see? I'm mean, like, what? What do you? I'm trying to think for myself. Like, what would I like to see happen here? I've got to pull for the Cubs. 
it's kind new of teams, I, right? I mean, exactly, yeah. but not. You want the I mean, Phillies I, to be in there? Come on, Chicago. You got to pull for the Phillies, and then out west, what am I going to do? We just had the Rockies on the show a couple weeks ago. I think I gotta, uh, you got to love I think the, Ro- my Rockies the Rockies. Rockies and Diamondbacks is great. I mean, you can't pull for the Dodgers, right? Even you even yeah, if you like, I mean, Kershaw. they are the, they are the, the most uh, um, expensive. Most exactly. highly paid. They have I mean, the biggest payroll. They're, they're, they're a smart team. They're an analytic they savvy team. I mean, behavioral economists are running the dang thing. But but they've got <laughs> look at that payroll they have. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go Rockies, Cubs, Phillies. There's my there's, there's my there's national rooting, rooting interest. Yeah, okay. For All the, right. For I'm going to go weeks. Phillies, Brewers. Yeah, this is the They haven't been around so for, uh, for a while. I'm rooting for so the Brewers. Legit. One of my former students who graduated last year is on the analytics staff at the Brewers. Ah, you got to give him credit. Okay. Yeah, All no, right. no. I, and I mean, like, they, they are another team that just, I mean, at least, I mean, maybe if you follow the NL Central more closely than I do, like, they didn't come out of nowhere. But they seem to come out of nowhere to me. So. No, right, right. They're, they're and just, the Cardinals are always competing. At it. There they are. Yeah. What about the West? Y'all didn't pick a team in the West? In the West, mm. well, I, I have to say, um, Rockies. I guess Rockies. I could never root for the Diamondbacks after what they did to the Yankees in Oakland. Oh, man. I'm still Randy sitting Johnson. there angry about it. national nightmare. <laughs> Those I, guys I'm are still, heroes. It's one of the worst nights of my life. That's when, speaking of Rivera, I mean, the guy the guy blew a save and, and no one hit the ball hard. I mean, it was yeah. absurd. Well, that's the, that's what happens Broken in sports, bats, man. Yes, that's exactly. what it was it was an epic moment, but I will never forgive the Diamondbacks. All right, Wharton Moneyball, <laughs> of course. This is Cade, Adi, and Shane. This morning, you can give us a ring one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Add us on Twitter. We're at W Moneyball up there at W Moneyball, or drop Matt an email. Even real time is fine. Business Radio at SiriusXM dot com. Shane, did you watch any Premier League? We're two weeks in, man. Are no. you there? No, come on. No, I mean you're going to have to drag me along on this one. Like, tell me about the premiere. What, what's, what's going on? What's this? I know. So, Kate's actually committing to watching soccer he, outside, outside of the World Cup. <laughs> outside of the World Cup. So, um, not every four years. More frequently than every more four frequently years. than every. Four Do you want years. to go to the now, union? They had a big upset. I understand. Let's put quotes around watching because okay. you know does it count if you, you keep if it you, on if the back. Follow end. highlights. I mean, yeah. My team. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's like kind of early that in the morning. What are you supposed know, to wake up know, for that? I know. Well, it's a weird year because Man City is odds-on favorite to win, like the biggest favorite they've had in a long time. But wow, wow, they are minus one eighty-seven. I don't think we, I've we ever seen that in a we, sport. We need to a start minus. getting like a, the standings in a run. Uh, we we need to like that's, yeah, that's what caught yeah, my eye. Need, yeah. Matt gave us Matt gave us the rundown. We've got EPL title odds. There are two-thirds probability of winning. That's absurd. We've got a stacked team, but Liverpool's legit. Keep in mind, there's no playoffs right so they right. do take yeah. some randomness out of the equation that's there. that's kind of the unique thing about the premier league is that that they've got 30 games or they've got 38 games they play every other team home and home yeah. and that's it yeah and they've been doing it for decades and it would be really cool i mean i mean again they have a unique situation only because soccer is a, a kind of a, an international enough sport where you have really kind of almost equally good leagues in in several countries i don't think there's yeah. any other sport like that yep um, it's super cool that they have kind of essentially no playoff on the regular. They just have a regular season to de- determine all the within country right. leagues, and then they have the Champions, kind of playoff yeah. stuff between. Yeah, between, between leagues, it's a neat I, setup, man. I just, I mean, you hear about Champions League because the top four teams out of the Premier League will go, the top four teams out of yeah. the league, etc. From all these different European leagues. But I didn't know there's another Europa is the next one down. So yeah. like the like the next three teams out of the premier premiership, so teams five, six, seven, I believe, right. play the same kind of. And they it's crazy because they're interweaving this 
this tournament, this yeah. cross-national tournament, with their regular season schedule. So yeah. early in the week, they'll go play Champions League or Europa or whatever. Same guys. Yeah. Maybe they'll shuffle a little bit, but basically the same guys. And then come back on the weekend and play right. their regular schedule. One thing, because their record this season qualifies them for the Champions Leagues the following That's right. season, it's right? Off by but year. it's not like it, it's the players of the the, the current season. current yeah, the so current yeah. players. You could, be, you could, yeah, you could absolutely have a totally have a different, different team. team. And they, and they do move around a fair bit. That's right. But it is a true. Yeah. It's an interesting market because they have all these leagues across yeah. Europe. They oh all play God. each other, and it's a free market. Yeah. And if you if you follow his, you know, historically in the United States, the leagues were different and independent in, in all sports, and we've kind of merged them under a monopolistic hierarchy to keep salaries down. It's exactly the the oddness of this is that it's the United States that are are acting like a the um, socialist. Anti, the socialist. In well, then you get but then you get Man City with the two thirds favorite. Two -thirds right. Exactly. Favorite. That's they what ends up happening. As we know, money can buy you some yeah, considerable right. talent. But well, I mean, I think on the the other thing I'd love to sort of see somehow in American sports is relegation. Yeah. The I think that promotion would be thing amazing. Is just the best. So, oh, so, my goodness. I mean, baseball is the only one that's kind of currently hooked up to <laughs> Yeah, you could totally do that. The well, Browns have got to go. I heard they've lost like 35 out of the last 36 games. Yeah. 31 out of 32. 31 out of 32. Like I mean, yeah. honestly, like Alabama, how many how many football teams, NFL teams would Alabama beat? None. None. Do you think? So? None. Absolutely. But, but the interesting place you could do this, and our friend Bill Connolly. You don't Bill, think they could beat the Browns? No, we've no, had this conversation. No, we can rehash remotely. it. No, 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 not remotely. But but you could, but Shane, the place to think about it would be within college football. Yeah. So between the Power Five and the yeah, yeah, Group yeah. Five. So you could have, it'd be nice to have guys like Power five teams relegated. Yeah, you know, get let's get Baylor out of there and Kansas yeah. out of there, and then get some of the top group of five, Boise's and UCS yeah, and USF's promoted. At least the risk of such a thing would provide some extra drama. Yeah, yeah, and I mean honestly, if we could arrange some kind of Champions League with Canada. <laughs> the amazing what sport? The, the winner, the great in, in football. I in mean, football? Uh, yeah, we'd have to decide no, on now, some. Now let's let Alabama play great the, the <laughs> CFL champ. Now maybe that would be no okay 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 no we take the <laughs> okay, we take the college champion we take the Canadian Football League champion we take the rugby champion uh, no no I can make this work I can oh, no, make this no, work no, we're, 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 baseball we're also gonna could, relegate our podcast the re the relegation would work in baseball too we've got all these other teams like uh, I mean honestly get rid of the stupid Miami Marlins and like right. bring up like the Durham Bulls or something like that or like you know. Pro Durham. That's we can do it. Have you have you seen have you seen the AP top twenty five for the coming football season? We're going to do a full show next week. We're already fired up about this. Bill, just Conley, on college football. Just on, on college football. The we, full two hours. We'll, 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 NFL, we'll talk too, a little NFL. NFL, but our guest. We've yeah. got Bill Connolly coming in. We've got Ty Hildebrand of the Solid It's so Verbal. exciting that the games are about to start. They're, they've got college football this weekend. Yeah, there are a few games this weekend. I've got to dig up this. The schedule. only thing I know about college football is that the A's drafted the Oklahoma quarterback. Yeah. What do you think That's about right. that? He's a he, this really is like the number eight, number nine pick in the draft. He's a center fielder in baseball. He's super quick. They like his quicks. He um Has he, he started, got, he got start, it, what it takes to be the quarterback in the NFL or no? He's too small to be a quarterback in the NFL and too running oriented. So um, why but, is he playing a day of college football? Because he loves it. He's cool, man. Here, let me give you a little background on him. So he's the son of a famous Texas A and M quarterback, mm -hmm. and he. As the as a as a high school student at a, at the largest classification of high schools in Texas, he was a six A high school. I think they won th three national three state yeah. championships. I yeah. might be exaggerating, but they won at least one. I think multiple with him as the quarterback. He goes to A and M where his father played. That place kind of blows up, especially their quarterback room blew up. Guys went. There was like a diaspora of A and M quarterbacks went around the around the country. He ends up at Oklahoma. 
behind Baker Mayfield last year, which That's means right. he only had mop-up duty. But when he played, he's very exciting. The guy is an exciting player. And everyone's kind of curious whether he can pull it off. But he wants that season. He wants a season as quarterback at a big-time program. And he's, you know, he loves the game. Yeah, so right. risking if I had that potential, I'd try and cross that off the bucket list. Why wouldn't yeah, you? Absolutely. I mean, because he's risking his entire financial. Well, not future. every. Well, no, not he, you know, know not everybody does makes every decision based on long term type financial gain. As a fun fact, it turns out, but four point six million on the line is a lot. That was a signing bonus from the. They eight. surely they. Sh- you well, think he did, takes insurance did, on. Did he? Did he? Did he not? Was he not able to cash that check? It's a signing bonus. Uh, yeah. Right. But uh, that's true. So he gets that. But he's... Uh, I think they okay. it, yeah. I think they made an they, agreement. They made an agreement to let they, him play let sports. Him play and even if he gets injured, yeah. he keeps it. So they they must have negotiated these things. And um, he must have insurance. And by the way, Oklahoma is completely stacked on the offensive side. I mean, for a quarterback to walk into that, that situation with a great line, with some super exciting receivers, and it's one of the best running backs in the country. I mean, it's just made to have fun. You can't blame the guy. Now I want them to, you know, be terrible. I want him. I want him to be healthy, of course, but I don't want him to do anything That's right. good on the football field. But if I were him, I'd, I'm like, come on, it's a great opportunity. Yeah. So Oklahoma, where did they come in for the AP? The AP poll has them um, seventh. The AP being kind of a proxy for conventional wisdom, I suppose. So we're an analytics show, so we yeah. want to contrast that with what Would the they are. Say. Are they uh, in the Big Twelve? Are they kind of the they're the they're the clear for, favorite in the yeah. Big Twelve? Like like if you look at the five most likely, but that top, says to me that the Big Twelve is probably the the one the conference that's most likely to be excluded from the playoff. Why? Well, only because they're only seventh in the country, right? Well, and they're the yeah, top. Remember, they're, they're by far the top team in the Big Twelve, and they're only seventh in the country. That's fair. That's fair. Right. That's fair. So let's just run down the AP yeah. real quickly. So Alabama number one, not surprising. Clemson number two, Georgia number three, Wisconsin four. So we've got at the and, and Ohio State five. So let's just look at what we have there. We have two SEC teams, two Big Ten teams: mm-hmm. Ohio State, and Wisconsin, Wisconsin, and Clemson from the ACC. So. We don't yet have the Pac-12 represented. You got to go number six, Washington, to get the Pac-12, and number seven, Oklahoma. That's a pretty fine distinction yeah. between those two conferences. Yeah, I, I gotcha. don't think that means I it's gotcha. super likely. Gotcha. Um, and we can we will unpack these in more detail next week. We can look at playoff probabilities. Look, that depends more on schedule than anything else. But um, I kind of like getting that conventional wisdom take from the AP. I, I can contrast it. I do have new Massey Peabody numbers fresh off. The wire last night, still processing them. We can look at where the biggest differences are with the AP. Well, and, and I mean, I'm I'm kind of curious, you know, because I I feel like if we were having this conversation maybe a month ago, um, Ohio State would not would be higher than Wisconsin. Yes, yeah, I, I it, mean, I assume that they have changed a little bit just be, with the whole coaching situation so there's, there. There's and uns- how do the analytics models build that in? <laughs> well, you know we don't because well, it's so hard to do. Well, I mean, I thought. I mean, I know you guys. At least Massey Peabody does uh, take into account quarterbacks as an actual kind of yeah. position. Yeah. Coach is not something. I mean, it would be. It's, I don't know exactly how you do it. We've never added any predictive accuracy. I think that's we, what you told yeah. us before. We know. Well, we've tried to code in new coaches versus you know non new coaches because you'd think that you would update more quickly with a new coach and I, I we're not satisfied with what we have been able to do there um and we coaching effects we know are in there but we end up kind of assigning the entire residual to the coach which isn't appropriate so we're you're right there's something to do there for sure and we are, we're not there I don't know anybody that's there but the question is whether Urban Meyer is even going to be coaching 
Um, most people think he's going to not lose his job over this, but it could. Who knows? Something could still break. As oh, I, to, sorry. I thought he. I thought it was already kind of that he was going to perhaps be not coaching at least to start the season maybe, or something he's, like that. He's I guess it, ha- it has not been decided yet. That's right. He's been suspended. They have not filed their report yet. They're over what they said they were going to be. It was supposed to have been in yet. But the full range is possible. He might be completely, you know, uh, reinstated. He might be suspended. He might lose his job. But And that's a big deal. So maybe that drops him a little bit, but I think they probably were number four before that. Mm-hmm. I'm just guessing. They've dropped by Wisconsin. We have Wisconsin much less rated than those guys. So we've got Wisconsin number 11 as opposed to the AP has on number four. The, the team that most catches my eye, but it's more from our rankings than the AP, is Notre Dame. They've been kind of irrelevant for a while. They've been quite irrelevant for a while. And we have a number six in the country. They've got something like 15 starters back. They've got nine of their 11 defensive starters back. They've got some questions at quarterback. But they one of the most interesting things about their being relevant is that it complicates the playoff picture because they come in as an independent. Yeah. So you've already got you know only four playoff spots for five major conferences, the Power Five conferences. One conference is always being left out. Last year, two were left out because they took two SEC teams. And now you've got another consideration. You've yeah. got to go to independence. You've basically and, got six, what, six paths to the playoffs for four spots. Okay. And, I mean, you sort of said that the path is all about schedule. Is their schedule kind of commiserate with, like, one of these Power Five teams? Or do they play more? Do they play less? They they generally play tough schedules. They've got standing rivalries with um, Stanford and USC, and they're both pretty good lately. Um, and then they've got a partnership with the ACC, which puts them playing some pretty stout teams out there. So they'll play Clemson, for example. They don't play them all all the time, and I okay. do not believe they're playing Clemson this year. They've had some Clemson battles right. in the last few years. So, he, uh, so Clumian, uh, as a Northeasterner, which is the highest-ranked team from the Northeast? What counts as the Northeast? Penn State? Penn State, okay. Isn't, isn't, Penn State comes right. in number in the middle 10. of nowhere and about 400 miles from to the west of here. But yeah, we'll it's, count almost, it. it's almost Midwestern, <laughs> isn't it? It is. Let's, let's Much closer to Ohio than here. Well, going on down, there just aren't many Power 5 teams up here. I mean, Boston College is the most clearly Northeastern. Yeah. But Boston College is going to be the very bottom of the top 25. And is it in the ACC? Well, the so ACC. there's just no tradition Pittsburgh, of serious. Pittsburgh's even further west. Well, but, yes, I mean, is. it's not like historically there hasn't been. No, Boston historically it's all about it. I mean, yeah. of course, historically the Ivy League was where yeah, football was took a place. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's definitely migrated west. There's, yeah. and yeah, I mean, we had we need to find out what's going on with that receiver from Penn who got drafted by Tampa Bay, fifth round draft pick. Mm-hmm. A Penn receiver, fifth round draft pick. That's about as high as it's been. I don't know in decades. Mm-hmm. I'm curious how he's doing. We need a training camp report from Eric Bradlow. Where are you, Eric? How's Eric's that? Moving, moving in his son. To, oh, that's today. That's right? today. Yeah, it's yeah, moving yeah. day for first. Next Wednesday is first day of class for me. Tuesday well, for we've, school. We've got the place has changed around here. We've got students flowing through. We've got the school year coming at us, and we're done with our first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. You guys come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Audie Weiner and Shane Jensen. Eric is out. He'll be back. You can join us this morning if you'd like. Jump in here, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six, Or drop us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can do that live during the show. You can also do it during the week. We're replayed four or five times over the next week. 
If it's not 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern, you're catching one of those replays, drop us an email or add us on Twitter at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our handle up there. We take questions, comments, heckling. We take suggestions for the over-under segment at the end of the day. Throw us something. We are just done talking about, we talked a lot about baseball. We talked a little bit about college football. We talked a little bit about Premier League soccer. In this next segment, we're going to talk a little bit about tennis. We have Jeff Sackman joining us. Jeff has been with us a few times before. He's a tennis analyst and the founder of TennisAbstract.com. We can highly recommend his website. You can find his writings um, from his Twitter account on at Tennis Abstract, or you sometimes can find him writing for The Economist. Jeff, good morning, and welcome back to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me, guys. Where are you calling from this morning? New York City. Oh, we, I was looking for the adventurous phone calls we sometimes get from you from Oslo, Norway. What are you doing in New York? Well, the U.S. Open is, I don't know, five days away now, and my favorite part of the event is always the qualifying, which is going on now. It's a little little more low-key. The crowds aren't as big, but the tennis is extremely high quality, so really? that's where I am this week. Really? Well, that sounds like legitimate tennis fan stuff. Tell us about the qualifying grounds, and you say extremely high quality. The casual tennis observer would say, how how quality can it be? These are like, what ranked players are playing to, to qualify? Yeah, it's a bit of a, a hipster sports pick but yeah, the, <laughs> it is Jeff the best players who are there are around number 100 in the world and it goes down to about 250 or 300 with a smattering of players who are a little bit lower and yeah I mean it's not Federer and Serena out there but the the number 100 ranked man or woman in the world is a really really good tennis player mm-hmm. and they're competing really hard because you know these are people who are on the fringes of even making a living in the sport despite having given up their entire life to it so the the intensity of the competition is really high it's also a great chance to see players who are maybe a couple of years from really breaking mm, through, mm. Um, especially American prospects, because the U.S. Open has the right to give out eight wild cards to men, eight wild cards to women. So they usually give most of those to the the Americans who don't quite qualify. So Americans who are maybe top 400, top 500, but often they're 16, wow. 17 years old. So the players who won the boys and girls championships last year, they're usually there. And it's okay. a, a good chance to see them trying to move up in the world. Okay. When you're taking in that kind of tennis, are you taking in it more as a traditional tennis fan? Or are you thinking of it from a, from an analytic perspective like you like you write? Well, I would say it's about 50-50. Um, I, there's definitely a big traditional tennis fan part there. And one thing that's always fascinated me is is our ability to predict predict the future for prospects. And in tennis, it's really, really, really hard. And when I first switched over to doing a lot of tennis from doing baseball, I just assumed we'd be able to figure out a way to do like the same thing as baseball MLEs or look at look at aging curves and sort of crack this puzzle. And we've made some progress, I think. But but there's so many players who check all the boxes you know they're they're playing well climbing the rankings at 19 20 they, they have all the skills and then at some point they just hit the wall and then they'll they'll keep playing challengers until they're 27 and then give up the ghost wow and the, somebody can follow the exact same pattern up to age 19 20 and then you know five years later they're number seven in the world jeff if so you had it, to it, hypothesize on why that happens what would you say and would you put it more on physical side or on or on non-physical mental attributes um i think the mental side is is a big factor in it, 
playing professional tennis is really, really hard. I mean, you're you're not just the player. You're managing a whole team, coaches, physios, stuff like that. Um, financially, it's really hard until you're in the top 50 or so. So I think there's a lot of challenges off court, and some players don't handle that very well. Mm-hmm. You, in order to get to the top, you've got to be playing really well almost all the time. And that I don't think that's something most human beings can do, given the right. challenges of, of playing professional tennis. Right. So how would you as an analyst incorporate this mental side of things if you are if you are trying to forecast? By the, by the way, the forecasting, who's the consumer of that kind of information? You might do it as a challenge or to really test your model. I suppose the manufacturers might be interested in knowing who to sign for endorsements. Like why, why, is that a, why is that an interesting exercise other than the intellectual part of it? Yeah, for me, it's just the intellectual part of it. Um, but yeah, ma- manufacturers might be interested. I'm not even sure to what extent they would be because they're they're often just signing everybody and they're they're picking out players for at least minor contracts really really early. Like I, I've known right? twelve, thir- I've known twelve, thirteen year olds who are getting you know free hats and t-shirts and tennis clothing and stuff. So th- that's that's pretty early early in the game huh. and. And yeah, beyond, I, I guess there are there are gamblers who are setting wages on like year end rankings, maybe. Ah, so, okay. So a one year timetable would would be of interest. Okay. I think there are there's at least one company out there that's that's selling insurance products to manufacturers and other companies that uh, that pay out like bonuses for big achievements. So they're interested in in medium term accomplishments. But but yeah, I'm I'm not sure it goes beyond an intellectual exercise to look at you know today's crop of 19 year olds and pick out who the the top ranked player 10 years from now is going to be jeff what what about what about if the u.s tennis association or whatever the governing body is what about the interest they have in cultivating top players and you hear people every few years someone's bemoaning the lack of you know quality young men u.s players or quality young women u.s players also my sense is that Canada does something that's a little bit like they run a little bit more systematic program, you know, something more like you might see for Olympic sports out of some countries or you might see in soccer programs by some franchises. Is there anything like that or or do you think there should be something like that? Uh, Not at the same at the same level of of intensity, let's say. But but yeah, I mean, the USTA is very invested in. in, in raising the next generation of players, and I, I think what there's what there's lacking is rigor in deciding what works and what doesn't. It, you definitely hear some big ideas and a lot of money being thrown after those big ideas. So, for instance, the, the, people are often talking about how it's better to train on clay than to train on hard courts. And in the U.S., you oh, mostly really? find hard courts. Huh? Why so would th- why would it, that be, by the way, Jeff? It forces you to think more tactically. If, if you're a, if you're growing up playing on fast hard courts, then you can win with a big serve and a couple big shots. If you're growing up in Italy or Argentina or something like that, you're only playing on clay courts. No matter how big your serve is, you've still got to learn to hmm. to play tennis, to, mm-hmm. to to construct a point, to to beat people with different skill sets. Mm-hmm. And th- there's one notable young American player named Jared Donaldson, who's currently ranked around 50 in the world. He 
he made the conscious choice in his teens to go train in Argentina for a couple of years. That, that's very unusual for Americans to go elsewhere because there's, there is a lot of support for the, the bigger name American prospect. Uh-huh. But the, the, the USDA has put in a ton of clay courts um, at their facilities in Florida. I think there's even uh, some clay courts at the um, McEnroe Center on Roosevelt Island as well. Okay. I could be wrong about that. But, but that's a move that it, it sort of has the, the outward trappings of a, an analytical move. I'm not sure what kind of – if there's actual solid analysis right. beyond that aside right. just sounding true. Right. So that, that's one example. I know Tennis Australia has a team of analysts that are working on various things. I don't know exactly what they're working on and relevant to precisely what we're talking about, but they have, they've consciously decided to include academics in their process. So I think they might be at the, at the head of this game right now. Jeff, this is Adi Weiner. I, I want to just t- t- take it back to the, 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 the progress that you mentioned you have had in trying to forecast some of these uh, future talent, uh, future successes. What goes into that? Is it anything more than win-losses? And do you have any physical characteristics? I'm almost thinking if you think back, the, the, uh, you know, how do you forecast the, the success of a, a football player or, or, a, or, a, or a basketball player or a baseball player? And each sport has its own kind of attribute mix. I mean, sometimes we were just talking about a, a football player slash baseball player who is not going to play professional football because he's just too small. Is there something like that for tennis that you just decide he's too big, too small, doesn't have the right speed, and even though they're playing great at, at, at their current age, they're never going to be a, a star? Do, what, are the, what are the things that kind of go into that other than just wins and losses against top performers? Well, as, as far as, as biographical data con- is concerned or, or like the sort of thing you'd give the NFL Combine, we just don't have that for tennis. I, mean, I, I think my database has height and that, that's weight. <laughs> We've got height. We don't have weight, actually. Um, I, I think you can track that down for some players, but not prospects. So, so I haven't looked at how how height predicts that far out. Um, I mean, obviously, being taller helps, but the sweet spot is more like six one, where where Federer and Nadal are. So being too tall isn't necessarily a good thing. You've got some some really tall guys who are are stuck outside the top 100 in the rankings. Um, being too short isn't great either. But on the other hand, we have a guy who's at five six in really prominent air quotes, who's number 11 or 12 right now in Diego Schwartzman. So th- there's a lot of routes to success physically. I think you mentioned speed, and that would be that, that would be an excellent thing to know to, to whether it's just print speed or other I don't, I don't know what the other measure is there any stat but, cast like data for tennis do we have yeah, i would have thought tracking, you could get your hands on that in some way you know ball velocity and <laughs> all kinds of you know pick up they have all these measures that, that you can measure these sort of uh, pop off the jeff you have to remember Adi's coming from the baseball world and he's like enamored of like exit velocity so he probably thinks you're well, I just, i'm not so enamored of it i just know it exists so i mean how could it not exist for tennis yeah it 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 does and it doesn't. It, it it in a technical sense, yes, it does. And if you ever watch a tennis match, you've probably seen the Hawkeye system, which measures where it, it, it's the challenge system for for close calls, and that involves six cameras in the court and a system to blend them all together to see where the ball is, where the player is, all that stuff at every moment in the, in the match. And that data does essentially do the same thing, and maybe even more. I mean, it, it's it's really, really impressive stuff. Unfortunately, for lots of reasons that you guys won't care about, um, it's it's not available outside of the, outside of the tournaments themselves. 
So a few academics have gotten a hold of, I think, the Wimbledon tracking data and been able to do a little bit with that. The, the team at Tennis Australia that I mentioned a minute ago, they've done a few things with the data that the Australian Open has. I've been working on for more than a year on trying to get a hold of the USDA's equivalent data to look mm-hmm. at some of this stuff. And it, it, it's not even hostility from anyone in the USDA or, or Hawkeye. It's just they don't do it. They don't use it for anything. So it, it, wow. they don't even have it handy to, to pass on to a researcher. So might be making some progress. Maybe I'll have a different story to tell you in a few months or, or another year. But but effectively, from from the sort of researcher's perspective, that data doesn't exist, even though it does sit on a computer somewhere. Right, right. We are talking to Jeff Sackman. Jeff is a tennis analyst and the founder of TennisAbstract.com. You can find him writing his handle at Twitter is at Tennis Abstract. He's also writing for The Economist. Um, and um, he's in New York right now watching the early rounds, the qualifying rounds of the of the U.S. Open. As a way of checking in on the status of analytics in the community of tennis, can you tell us who there is interested in talking to you? You're doing something other than just watching tennis. You're talking to people in the industry. Who's most interested in talking to Jeff Sackman, analyst, these days? I wouldn't say there's a ton of interest in talking to me. <laughs> it, it, it sounds like Come a on. nice alternative alternative vision there, but but no, there's there's not a lot. I know there are that there are some coaches who are getting increasingly interested in analytics. I'd say it's it's still a, a baby step process. On the WTA side and the women's game, uh, the SAP, the the cloud provider, they have this this thing where they provide some real time stats to coaches. I mean, it's pretty pretty bare bones stuff, just like the direction that players are serving, uh, the really basic stats like first serves in and second serves in and stuff like that. And there are some coaches who've really praised that system. They really like having that stuff at their fingertips. Yep. And it it, it it's not advanced analytics in the sense that you or I would generally talk about it, but that is a step in the right direction. I would say 10 years ago, no one's making comments like okay. that. Okay. So, so that's some progress. I, I think that there's increasing awareness in, in the USTA and other federations, like we're talking about, that, that analytics could be the path to better player development. So, so there's some conversations going on there. Uh, but it, it's still mostly an outsider's game. I mean, the, the, the thing to keep in mind with tennis is there, there's not really, there's not really teams. I mean, no, no one has a big financial stake in picking the right player, except for maybe manufacturers, like you mentioned before. So it's really just players and coaches making a bet on whether analytics is going to make them a better player. And I think that we might see a breakthrough in the next few years if some player does decide to make that bet and mm-hmm. then you know ends up winning Wimbledon or something. But short of that sort of thing, I, I think we're going to continue to see baby steps for quite a while. Do you think it's an opportunity for, as Cade mentioned earlier, the idea of, a, of an individual country that supports its a particular program to invest in it? Because there's no individual who might afford or have value in it, but maybe the United States says, we want to really organize all this data um, and do something for the, <clears throat> for the United States. Is that something on the horizon or possible? I mean, you talked about ten, uh, U.S. Uh, tennis Australia. They're doing it. And I've met some of their analysts. Um, is there anything happening in the United States, or could it happen? It, it could happen. I, I, question, I question how valuable it would end up being, especially to the federations themselves. Because if, if you think about it, one of the things that I, that I love about baseball analytics is you, you work with with so many really fringy concerns. Like, like you'll, you can really dive into who's the best, 11th person to have on your pitching staff or who's the, who's the best versatile infielder <laughs> to have on your bench. And those 
so so you're looking at a a 24th or 25th man and if you're the USTA you're 24th or 25th man or 24th or 25th women that that person is irrelevant in the world of tennis i mean they're a really 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 good tennis player and they're probably playing out in flushing this week but they're never going to be relevant in in the average tennis fan's mind wow. the the players who are going to be you know top 10 in the world I mean, like I said at the outset of it, it, it's not a guarantee, but we know who those people are at age 16, maybe earlier. Like, you you don't need analytics to pick out somebody who's worth investing in. Um, There might be a little guidance there, but I I think that that's the fundamental thing with a sport that's so top-heavy is you don't need analytics to know who the best players are, whether they're 16 or 28. You don't need analytics to keep them at the top of the game. Your analytics is going to give you really minor improvements, and those minor improvements might be worth a lot of money to the right person, but it's a it's a lot tougher sell to, to in tennis to have those minor improvements be worth investing in than it is in baseball, where you can really quantify. You know, this is what Billy Bean did, and we're going to write a book about it and explain to the world how he made all this money from using analytics for the first time. Right. So, But what about from the from the consumer side? So those of us will be watching the U.S. Open here in a couple of weeks. How do you think we should watch differently because of things you've learned as an analyst? So if you were to sit down and say, okay, Tennis Analytics 101, here are the three most important things you might want to know as a consumer of tennis. Well, the first thing, and this is something that I've, I've come back to a lot in, in various things I've written, is situations don't matter as much as we think they do. Um, they matter a little bit. But what, what I mean is if, if you listen to commentators in a typical tennis match, you'll hear that certain points are really crucial, I mean, that, that the, the seventh game of a set is particularly pivotal, that the first point of a game it really sets the tone for the game. Right. There's ton, tons of things like that. And I, I don't even know what they all are. I don't think everyone agrees on what they all are. But but a lot of them are these consensus, conventional wisdom kind of things, like like sacrifice bunting twenty years ago. Yep. And and I've looked into all of the ones that I've heard about, and repeatedly find that they're really, really small effects, and sometimes not effects at all. Yep. So something that I wrote on tennis abstract yesterday was on match points specifically. When one player is a point away from from winning a match. I looked at women's tennis specifically and found that when women are serving one point away from the match, it, I think the conventional wisdom is that there's a lot of pressure there. So they, they won't play as well. They won't win points at the same rate. Hmm. And they don't quite win points at the same rate. They, they drop by 3%, which I don't think any person would ever notice. Uh, so right. someone, someone who's winning 60% of their surf points drops to, what, 58.4 or something, right. which is basically the same. The the seventh game thing people have been talking about. I think it used to be called the the, the Tilden game after Bill Tilden. So that we're talking about something that goes back to the 30s. I think uh-huh. um, not not predictive at all. The seventh game has has no effect on the the path of the rest of the set. So so every point is is basically independent and identically right. distributed. Right. Um, right. So that that not, not exactly. It, yep. That's just classic analytics, and that it kind of busts the typical narrative, and, yep. and things end up being a little bit more independent than the the stories would suggest. Well, Eric isn't here today, but he'd be uh, flipping yeah. out. Yeah, he's our momentum. He's our momentum guy. Momentum yeah. What about man. what about momentum in tennis? 
that's another thing that I haven't found a lot of. I, and I wrote something about this maybe five years ago now that you know, I, I have a couple of friends who are constantly badgering me to go find this stuff. I mean, it, it, it's not terribly, uh, terribly analytical of them to think, like, here's an effect we know you're going to find. Go find it. Uh, <laughs> but it, 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 one of the things that's fundamental about tennis is that there's not a lot of, of – of things that players will do repeatedly exactly the same way. So you're, you're switching sides after every point. So a, a deuce court, court serve is a different physical motion than an ad right, court serve. Right. So yes, you'll see you'll see players go on serve streaks, but it's not like it's not like they're shooting free throws. Free throws, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might see someone's forehand get hot, but they could go an entire game without really getting to open up on a forehand. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they do go on a serve streak, they win four points, and then <laughs> the other guy's serving, and then you take a break. So th- there's not an opportunity to to really have have one component of your game get hot and take you very far. Got it. Got it. So. Hey Jeff, before but we're going to run out of time with you, uh, unfortunately, because we could talk with you forever. Can you're at the U.S. Open? We'll all be watching the U.S. Open here in a little bit. Can you give us one name in the men's draw and one name in the women's draw? You think we should keep our eye on, kind of beyond the obvious. You know, it's, we know the top of the men's draw, but who else should we be paying attention to, and who do you think we might pay attention to in women's? Well, let's start, let's start with the men's. Um, you got to watch Kevin Anderson, and I'm. I, I, in one way, I mean that. Another way, I don't. To me, he's one of the most boring players on the tour. I mean, he's a re- really tall guy, huge serve, not a terribly versatile rest of his game. But he made the semifinals at Wimbledon. He made the final at Wimbledon, rather. He played the the marathon semifinal against John Isner. He um, he's been dangerous in this North American hardcore swing in Canada and Cincinnati, and. He, like I say, he's not the most compelling guy to watch. He's now 32, and he's still improving, which is very unusual. And he could beat anybody on any given day. I mean, he, he beat Federer at Wimbledon. He, he didn't manage to put up much of a challenge against Djokovic in the Wimbledon final. But on a, on a good day, I think he could do that. So Jeff, I'm going to Jeff, I have to jump in right there. I hate to cut you off. I could listen to you for another half hour, but we're going to have to go to break. You suggest Kevin Anderson on the men's draw to keep an eye on. Thank you. That was Jeff Sackman. Jeff, thank you for joining us from Flushing Meadows. Glad to have you in the States. Always glad to talk to you. Jeff, you can find his work on at Tennis Abstract or TennisAbstract.com. You can also find him writing for The Economist, one of the great tennis analysts out there. That's the first half of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Shane and Adi. You guys can jump in and join us. Send us a question, observation by phone or email. Phone is 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. Open lines. You guys can ring or email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, or add us on Twitter. Our account is, our handle is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests up there. It's a good way to stay in, in touch with the world of sports analytics we take your questions there we take your suggestions for over under coming up at the end of the hour just off the phone with jeff sackman jeff's one of the best tennis analysts out there great and a great writer so if you're interested in tennis and tennis analytics track him down um enjoyed talking with him he lives in norway but he's back early watching the qualifying rounds at the u.s open because that's how hardcore he is about tennis in the next half hour a little 
a little sport, a little sport called football. We're finally there. I think this is our first football guest of the season, Mike Renner. Mike is a senior analyst at Pro Football Focus. We'll talk about what those guys do. He evaluates performance of both NFL and college football players. Mike, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. We're glad to have you. Where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where our company, PFF, Pro Football Focus, is headquartered. So we've had a number of people from PFF, Pro Football Focus, on our show over the years. I don't think we've had you. We're glad to have another one. How many of you are there over there in Cincinnati these days? Gosh, people in Cincinnati, uh, I want to say, that are actually analysts, that are actually doing the football, you know, involved in the football operations. Uh, I'd say about a dozen that are actually doing some sort of football. But then we have... IT people, behind the scenes, uh, a lot of that stuff. So in total, just full-time employees, we're up around 80 full-time employees at the moment. Okay. And you've been there something like six years. Is that right? How much has the place grown in those six years? Just, it feels like y'all have only been around about six years, no? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Over the last six years, it's been, it really has been a wild ride. It's been a lot of fun to have experienced it. I got in straight out of college back in 2012 uh, in a part-time role. Uh, and back then, they were fewer than... There are fewer than 10 total employees, right? right. Uh, and that was including part-timers. Now we have, uh, I mentioned 80 <laughs> full-timers. Now we have, I think, 300 part-time employees that help us with Mike, uh, how, data charting. how did you find these guys? Coming out of school, you went to Notre Dame. Coming out of school and you go to work for this new outfit in Cincinnati. I mean, how do you even get matched up with them? I, so I had a, I had an accounting degree. I was an accounting major there. It was my senior year at Notre Dame. And all I knew was I didn't really want to do accounting. I was kind of fed up with accounting. Uh, and so I was going to switch to something else. Uh, I wanted, I was going to be an actuary. I ended up taking two actuarial exams then. Mm. But uh, it still didn't feel great. It was kind of the best of, you know, the best of a bad situation that I thought I found myself in. And I loved this website. It was called Pro Football Focus back then. I just loved the goal of what they were trying to accomplish of actually looking at every single play to accurately grade performance instead of just, you know, listening to whatever guy who's on your TV who's to play says about, you know, how good your player is. So right. I, I was, thought it was an admirable goal, and I remember checking spring semester of my senior year and seeing that they were hiring people. I applied, and they, really didn't, they didn't really care about football knowledge because it was just a data-charting position, but I got that uh, for that fall uh, as I was still taking actuarial exams then and looking for a job as an actuary. And then by the time after the season, when I was actually, you know, Hacking to decide if I wanted to be an actuary or be going to football, I, they offered me a you know full time position doing the charting there, and then ended up teaching me how to do analysis. So that's where I uh, how I got started. Well, let's do a quick recap on what Pro Football Focus offers these days. I think of you guys first as a charting outfit, and you sell those charting data to teams. And my impression is essentially everybody in the NFL subscribes to various data you provide, and then probably a number of teams. In, on the college football level as well. Increasingly, you're getting into some analytics. Um, but the, the, the first product was essentially like grades on players at the play level, at the game level, at the season level. Um, but, but can you round that picture out? What is, I mean, in pro, I mean I'm, I'm saying some of this because our listeners need to know this. You guys are a major force these days in mm-hmm. analytics and football. But round out the offering because I know you guys keep on growing. Yeah, so the original analytics in the NFL was basically uh, – looking at tendencies, looking at what people do on third and longs, what people do on first and tens, that sort of thing, what kind mm-hmm. of what they do out of certain formations, and then, you know, having defenses, whatever, designed for that. And we take that to its, you know, ultimate extreme. We track everything from 
uh, we track you know every route that goes on in the field, every you know blitz that they run, every play set a player lines up on a certain play, uh, every offensive lineman, what kind of block they make on every single play. We track all this different data, and so we can take that you know that sort of the original uh, you know the tendencies and take it to its ultimate extreme. Anything you really want to know, we put that data into your video system, and you can pull it out you know with a click of a button. So that's our biggest you know, value added to any NFL team yep. and the grades and that sort of aspect is just another layer of that. So I want to see every play where a guy did, you know, well on a play, every, every block where an offensive lineman was good, every block where an offensive lineman was bad. And from a coaching standpoint, you can then go back and, uh, you know, go te- go look at all the bad blocks and say, oh, why is he performing badly on those plays? Something, you know, maybe there's a coaching point in there that he overlooked, and then that he can go back and fix. So, Mike, let me I just jump in real quick and underscore yeah. what you just said. I, I believe you're talking about integrating the the charting and the grading with video and, yes. and making it instantly accessible to your subscribers and clients so that they can – it's not just numbers. They, they, have, they have things that they can see. They can kind of check your numbers, but also the players can learn, the coaches can learn. This is a, a huge step forward in analytics. Yeah, it's, uh, it's integrating analytics into the actual coaching realm uh, of it. And we, we do, like I said, we have the uh, a lot of stat-based stuff that we do, a lot of things about value of certain positions that we've been working on. But I think that's our biggest – that's more stuff that we kind of – I don't think NFL teams – not that they don't gain value from that, but that's – that's the stuff they're more hesitant to listen to, I'll say. Uh, this is Shane Jensen. Um, one question I always have, sort of have about the grading and process and stuff like that is when you take sort of like kind of um, things like, say, like a defensive line or something like that or offensive line where it's, it's you know, obviously the performance of each individual player. I know, I know you're giving grades to each individual player, but – you know, there, there's so much interaction between those players on any particular play. Like, can you talk about, like, how easy it is to kind of parcel out partial contributions of players when it's sort of like, like in, in cases like an offensive line where there's so, such coordinated movement between them? At the end of the day, I think I actually think offensive line is one of the easier positions to grade because it's a one-on-one interaction. While, while yes, it looks like this, very complicated, you know, movement with five to six different guys having to coordinate and do accomplish one goal. Each guy is realistically blocking one person, and what how they do in that one-on-one interaction. There's you know certain types of blocks. There's a, you know, there's a handful of types of blocks that an offensive lineman is asked to execute because you don't have a, a thousand different blocks that you want a guy to run, or else you just wouldn't be good at. It. There's only a handful of types of blocks, and so once you can recognize what your you know, know enough about football to recognize what those blocks are, all of a sudden it's just grading, you know, how well he executed that block is basically what it is. So I think O-line, D-line is actually easy, whereas when a guy's playing zone coverage as a, you know, an off corner and he has to pass off two different routes to go get another, that's when it's more a square situation that you don't see as much. So you're saying to yourself, is this, you know, how it's harder to sort of evaluate. Did he do well on that? I haven't seen this, you know, play. A guy have to make this play as much. Was that very difficult? Was that very easy for him to make? Right. That sort of thing. So I think those are the harder ones for us to actually accurately assess. One of the things you guys are doing is bumping your evaluations up from the player level to the unit level. So you're, you, I know you've done some work recently on evaluating entire O-lines or, or evaluating entire secondaries. Can you tell us about what goes in? That sounds really interesting and possibly very relevant. Can you tell us what goes into that? 
Yeah, and so that goes back to our the value stuff that we've been working out of positional value, where offensive, you know, final on the offensive line, that tackle position is far more valuable in terms of how they impact the game. And we've done a lot of stuff, our analytics team, with expected points add. What, what, uh, you know, when a guy gets them, so our grading systems from minus two to positive two with these point five increments. When the offensive lineman gets a minus one point five on the pass play. Uh, what does that mean to expected points added over the course of, you know, these hundreds of thousands of pass plays that we now have in our uh, database? So that that's one of the stuff we've been doing. So we've seen, you know, off tackles are more valuable, cornerbacks are more valuable in secondary. So we're leading on if you have two good corners like Jacksonville, two of the best in the game, you're all of a sudden going to be our top-ranked secondary, even if you don't have maybe the greatest safety tandem in the league also. So I, I do think that's, a lot of that stuff has been very eye-opening to not just the people around, you know, uh, the NFL and people that cover the NFL, but to us as well here. A lot of the stuff is very, oh yeah, this actually makes sense now from what we're seeing. So that's that's really interesting and and really tricky. So on the one hand, that sounds like some of the most valuable information a team could use, maybe not on a day-to-day basis, but from a building a roster, you know, drafting mm-hmm. a guy. You know, like last year, for example, this should be close to your heart. Coming out of Notre Dame, the guard, Hutchinson, supposedly one of the most surefire lineman prospects or any prospect for years. Mm-hmm. Everyone's like, this guy's going to be a 10-year starter in the NFL. But he's only a guard. So how do you how do you evaluate the importance of that? That I mean, do you actually take him in the top five, given that he's only a guard? You could start to better answer that if you could understand is how the guard value compares to the offensive tackle compares to the cornerback. So I think it's terrifically important and kind of the holy grail in some ways. But it's also hard because you got to these guys do work. You're talking about modeling interactions, moving beyond just okay. Here's the secondary. Here are the four component parts. The value of the secondary is the sum of those parts. You're saying actually no. It's it's there's some kind of interaction that when the cornerback. Yeah. It turns out when the cornerback is really good. Everybody else's play comes up, but if you make the yeah. safety really good, it doesn't necessarily bring up the cornerback's play. Is that right? Yeah, that's basically what we're driving at with. And I think it also on the other side of the ball, when you have a quarterback who's really good, it lifts the you know. I think everyone sort of accepts that it lifts the performance of your wide receiving core and that sort of stuff. But when you have a quarterback who's really bad, it's going to bring down you know the performance of your wide receiving core. So I think that's one of the things that we're seeing other positions also do that. So can you talk, can we talk at all about the analytics of this? Because I think that it's a pretty big challenge to pull across, pull out those interactions. Because in some of these positions, you don't see the kind of variance I would think that you would need in order to make the assessment. So, you know, how are you really supposed to? I mean, let me give you a, a non on field example. But how do you parse the the individual contributions of Bill Belichick and and Tom Brady when they're you know point nine correlated? They don't, you know you don't often see yeah. one without the other. Now Belichick had a season without him, and a few get a seasons before him, but. Mostly you don't see them, but you don't see other QBs on field for the Pats much at all. So how are you really supposed to know the difference that Brady makes? Now, that is probably one of the biggest, that's one of the most difficult things with analytics in football. And unfortunately, I'm not into, I am not the guy who actually does the data modeling, any of that sort of stuff. I just know via my conversations with our analytics team, uh, I have a lot of in-depth conversations with them because. We, I have the you know the knowledge of the actual play-by-play grading, what we are looking for, and how that uh, you know sort of translates what it actually means. Those grades, and then they have the knowledge of taking those grades and then sort of adding that layer of uh, you know, like what you were just mentioned, how mm-hmm. much they actually matter uh, mm-hmm. on a play-by-play basis. So mm-hmm. I don't actually I'm not involved in that data modeling, but 
that is the hardest thing is to actually, uh, you know, sort of cut through the noise of the fact that all, all these things are interspersed and you can't even take scheme and role out of it uh, as well. With right, right. Seeing guys play really well in a certain role and then play really well and not play well in other roles uh, that, you know, other are technically the same position, you know, technically maybe still cornerback, but a different zone versus man corner guy might be really good man very bad zone so it's difficult to take all those other things out but i think on a more we're still looking for these bigger surface level trends of like we mentioned cornerbacks being more valuable tackle being more valuable and even if it's just a little bit at this point then trying to you know the more data we get the more we'll know good it makes sense and it's a it's a really interesting problem and, and i get that it's hard and probably more detail that we should go in anyway but can you give us a few more of these observations so for example among the receivers you could imagine and this is this is how relevant this question is. Teams will go into free agency wanting to improve their receiving core, and they only have money for like one possible Pro Bowl quality guy. And the guy's going to be kind of a league average guy. Do you spend that extra money on a slot guy, an outside guy, or tight, a tight end. end? Yeah. So we've actually one of the one of the interesting insights we came across uh, over this past off season through uh, through our analytics team was. That slot targets, targeting tight ends or slot receivers, so the interior guys, uh, on average. So we did a lot of quarterback, historical quarterback charting as well to uh, to go find this data. Those, on average, have more steps of separation than, uh, I think it's like three steps more of separation uh, at the catch point than targeting outside receivers in the NFL. They're just a far more higher percentage and lead to a high, and the tight end position actually, targeting the tight end position, leads to the highest expected points added of any position in the NFL. So if you're going to, and that's not necessarily just an invest in a tight end, invest in a slot receiver, that also has ramifications of schematically start telling your quarterback to start throwing towards the slot because that's mm-hmm. going to be the more open position. That's the position mm-hmm. that's going to lead to more you know, mm-hmm. points, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you have, interesting about that, and there's almost a blending of these things t- these days. You know, Traditionally, the slot player, you've thought of them as a little scat little scat back kind of player, or you might even have a, like a third down running back who sometimes gets over to the slot and plays that role. But we've got the kind of the emergence of these flex tight end guys. I mean, the the tight end that was just drafted out of Oklahoma by the Ravens, for example, is one of these guys. He's barely an inline blocker, right? But he looks like a tight end, so he's essentially a big slot. And, you know, I'm staying, you know, Big 12-centric here, but the University of Texas has a very tall slot. He'll he'll be one of the most valuable players on the team this year. Is that an emerging trend that we have these kind of tight end looking guys playing a traditional slot role? I think it is, and I think it's also an emerging trend to try to get your number one receivers, you know, your traditional, your Julio Joneses uh, of the world, into the slot more because ah. it just creates, like I mentioned, you you have more separation when it's in zone coverage. That is the place that's going to give you more space. Uh, you know, to work with, and it's just more difficult for a cornerback to have to defend, you know, multiple, when you're that guy in the slot, especially when you're, like I said, a larger receiver there, uh, you're going up against either a linebacker, and if that's a wide receiver, if you're a guy, like you mentioned, these bigger tight ends who can run, that's an advantage for you, and if you're going up against a slot corner, they've traditionally been, uh, you know, smaller cornerbacks right. than the outside corners, that's where you sort of put your shorter, shift your cornerback, Right. you get a big you know, you get that big tight end on a shorter shifter cornerback and basically just throw it up to him and he's going to come down with it. So I do think that is an emerging trend that we'll continue to see. Mike, you said try to get your number one receiver into the slot like a Julio Jones, bring your outside guy inside. Why is that hard? Why is it not just, hey, let's design some passes where we start out with Julio Jones, you know, in the slot? 
right? I mean, it, it doesn't seem like it should be hard, but a lot of uh, it's just NFL coaches in general are entrenched in their uh, in their ways. So, you know, they are not willing to sort of think outside the box to solve these problems that you know have solutions that you know that we're trying to tell these teams. And so, I think that's something that hopefully we can contribute to more in the, the coming years is actually getting convincing these teams. Yeah, and I mean the risk aversion of coaching is something we talk about a lot in our show. One thing that might be kind of part, I mean one thing that kind of this whole conversation about uh, the, the slot versus outside receivers has, has brought to mind is I mean, obviously, you guys are on the cutting edge as far as the data collection and analytics, even to get to the point where you can make a recommendation like, oh, you need to do more interior uh, passing. Could it be that that is also something where, you know, teams can adopt that because it's got slightly higher expectation, but you may also be really jacking up the variance with that kind of strategy, too? Because, I mean, interior passes probably, I assume, are far more likely to be intercepted. Mm-hmm. You know, and stuff like that. So it could be, it could be part of the coach's risk aversion or hesitation to kind of really change their game plan. Is you know, they're like, well, you know, if I've got Ryan Fitzpatrick there as my as my quarterback, maybe I don't want to necessarily go to a more interior passing scheme. It might have slightly higher expectation, but also much higher variance. Yeah, I don't actually know the numbers off the top of my head in terms of interception rates. Uh, by field quadrant, uh, I would guess. It just so while yes, you know, throws over the middle can be risky in terms of, especially when you're attacking, you know, multiple levels of the defense. At the same time, there's shorter throws than throwing to the outside. Throwing outside the numbers, this is going to be a longer throw, and I think the majority of pick sixes are going to come on throws outside the numbers, just from my purely Interesting. speculative from like, what you know. You have from to remember the game. So. You, you, something you don't know about Shane is that he's a Patriots fan and he's still still bleeding. Over the Super Bowl interception. Well, which, no, I, 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 I sort of. I, I mean, I, I kind of. I guess I realize that having a quarterback that can just hit whatever target he wants to, whatever he wants to, is is somewhat of a, a precious gift. And <laughs> yeah, most right. quarterbacks don't work like that. He's trying to be and benevolent. So right? you know, like you know, I'm trying to put my mind into into the mind of a person who watches mediocre quarterbacker play. <laughs> and, 30, and, 30. And, and and I feel like they do throw mediocre quarterbacks do tend to throw a lot of interceptions. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. But I do feel like the Patriots have been on the cutting edge in terms of they target the slot and tight end. Yeah. Yes, that's right. In the NFL. And yeah, and, and I guess sort of uh, my, my, my kind of ignorant casual fan kind of statement would be they do that in part because they have one of the few quarterbacks that can do that so consistently. Mm-hmm. But maybe it is just more of a maybe, – maybe it's not as simple as that. Maybe mm-hmm. most quarterbacks could adapt to sort of a more internal game and actually succeed at it. We're talking to Mike Renner. Mike is senior analyst at Pro Football Focus. You've probably heard of those guys. They provide information that every NFL team, literally, I'm, I'm at least thirty, and probably every it's at this all point, of all, yeah, of them, now, all, look, all of them. Look, all of them. All right. Now, at this point, they've got all of them. Depend on as they prep, um, and uh, increasingly looking at college football as well. Mike, as as you as we roll into the season, or maybe even, well, let's put it this way: we're in the middle of preseason. We're three weeks out of four, I think, into or two weeks out of three. And we're two weeks into the four-week season. Most people don't make much of preseason, but I suspect guys who look more closely, I mean, you know, teams are making roster decisions based on these games as well as on practice. What what have you gleaned, if anything, from what you've seen from the NFL so far? I don't think you can make any wide-sweeping generalizations about a team or even the scheme they're going to run, that sort of thing, because teams, you just don't prepare for your opponent in the preseason. That's such a big part of, like I mentioned, the analytics of 
preparing certain coverages for third and longs is, you know, that sort of stuff. The matchups are huge in the NFL. Uh, and so you don't do that at all in the preseason. You don't run your stuff that, you know, you want to hide for the regular season. So making a sweep of generalization by a single team is probably futile. But I do think you can sort of glean insights as to individual player performances. When a guy like Baker Mayfield looks good and poised in the pocket in the preseason as a rookie, I think you can sort of say, hey, you know, that might translate you know, mm-hmm. quickly to the NFL. It's better than looking on the opposite end of the spectrum when you're, you know, shifty and throwing the ball all over the place like someone like maybe Lamar Jackson has been. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think you can glean individual insights like that. And he's one of the guys, Baker Mayfield, that I think could, you know, end up, you know, looking good as a rookie if he does end up starting mm-hmm. uh, and a handful of other guys. But I think that's probably the only the only real takeaway I'm going to say from preseason. Even if the guy doesn't play well as, as early in his career, I'm not going to write him off right away either. Okay. What about stepping back and thinking about as we as we go into regular season, what storylines most interest you or what are you going to be paying attention to? Who do you follow, by the way? Who's your who's your team? Uh, I'm a Packers fan. So okay. The Packers secondary is really intriguing to me because they have, you know, they had our highest they drafted our highest ranked corner and our third highest ranked corner right this year and they're both, you know, they're both probably going to either starting or a lot of playing time. Wow. And so uh, just from how bad they were in the secondary last year to maybe if, you know, both those guys hit like we said they might, uh, that would be just a monstrous turnaround at, like we just talked about earlier, the most valuable position on the defense. So. Well, Mike, how, how, how often do first-year corners make big contributions? How long does it take to get up to speed in the NFL as a, as a cornerback? I think it, it obviously varies. Uh comparatively, but we've seen a handful of guys, and especially last year, Marshawn Lattimore was you know, incredible. Tredavious White graded out. They both graded out as top 10 cornerbacks as rookies. So while we've seen some guys struggle, it's not unheard of for guys to step in right away and be able to contribute like that. And especially, I think, uh, in teams that play a more man coverage, because that's that doesn't change you know, from wherever you're at. If you're good at man coverage, you can do that right. wherever. You don't have to really learn a scheme to be to know how to play man coverage. Right, right, that's interesting. What about Aaron Rodgers? Where is he in the age curve? What should we expect of him? How much longer is he going to be able to keep it up? What's he going to do? He doesn't. He, did he lose Jordy Nelson now? Not just to injury, yeah, but no. to trading. So what do you do without Jordy Nelson? Uh, I don't think Jordy, from what we saw from last year, it was his lowest year in terms of yards after contact, or yards after the catch by okay. far. Okay. Like two yards even below his, his season at, or his career average, okay. which that's always concerning. When a guy sort of loses that, I think that's when it's about time. So I don't think that's a huge loss, but at the same time, they really haven't replaced him with anything, uh, anything meaningful besides Jimmy Graham, the tight end position. So I think they use the tight end position more this year, and I think we'll see about the same Aaron Rodgers. I think he's got at least four more years before the, oh. you know, that new quarterback age curve takes a hold. I don't know. Is that the fan speaking or is that the analyst speaking? Four more years. I mean, just from what we've seen in terms of uh, – he's, he's not at his peak. I think he hasn't been at his peak in – a handful of years, but right. at the same time, I don't think he's uh, for how high his peak was. I don't think we're going to be seeing the decline take a hold of him into being anything below an elite, you know, level quarterback for a few years. Okay, staying with QBs on that age curve, what's your analysis at the moment of Roethlisberger? And and what do you think about Mason Rudolph coming in? Is does he have the chops to be an NFL quarterback? I think Roethlisberger again is another guy who's on the downside uh, and has taken a few steps back, but it's not nearly ready to hang it up. I think he's uh, his peak was around a few years back. I think three or four years back was his highest graded season from us. And it's been 
a little worse every single year. Injuries have definitely definitely taken hold, but uh, I still think he is. You know, he can lead them to the Super Bowl if the defense holds its own there. So uh, I think he's still good. And Mason Rudolph, we liked him coming out. We actually had a first round grade on him. Oh wow! But he's one of the guys who his preseason has been tellingly rough to where I, I would right? not be hoping he gets into the into the regular season anytime soon. Do you think developmentally? You, we need to be patient with these guys. So you're talking about, I think it's understandable, you're talking about you know Mayfield flashing early as comfortable, Jackson maybe not, Rudolph maybe not. Mm-hmm. How much do we need to reserve judgment? Another way to think about it, to what extent is is development possible for these rookie quarterbacks? I mean, how much do they change? I mean, Rodgers, for example, didn't really play for, what was it, a couple of years after mm-hmm. he came out, even though he was a highly regarded quarterback coming out of Cal. To, I did, you know, how, how much development can we expect? To what extent can we really see the true thing straight away? It's one thing to where we really don't have a huge data set at this point. You know, we have a little over a decade uh, of you know quarterbacks who have played early in their careers. But one thing we have seen is that there really has been no correlation. You know, to really poor grades as a rookie are not. Really, are not writing guys off. We've seen Matt Stafford have, I think, yeah, one of the worst grades we've ever given to a rookie quarterback or just a quarterback in general. His rookie year, we had Jared Goff very similarly have one of the worst grades we've ever seen. Carson Wentz did not grade out well. Uh, so we have seen guys in our system just really not put it together year one and bounce back from that. Same time though, if you do grade out well year one, if you're Russell Wilson, and you know if you're Andrew Luck, if you're one of those guys. Uh, that's a good sign. So uh, okay. it's not. Uh, it's no, it's just the biggest thing though is it's no kiss of death by any means to not be ready for the NFL. Okay, Mike, you're talking about grades on quarterbacks. I mean, you're you've been working for Pro Football Focus for six years. How do you end up? Mm-hmm. But you're also a football fan. How do you think you watch football differently because of the work and your time there? And what would you? What's one thing you might call to the attention of the casual viewer that they might look at a little more deeply or more insightfully? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is just to not watch the football. You get caught up in watching the football a lot, and you recognize the cornerback out of play, and then you recognize the next guy who got the ball, and then that's about it. Yeah. If, especially at the college level when you get a little more, uh, usually you have a wider view of the field, you get to see a little more view of the defense. Uh, it, you can pick out different things right off the snap, a lot of different things. You can pick out the run concepts, you can pick out, you know, the pass protection that they're running, is it a blitz or not? And those are just makes the game more fun when you recognize, hey, they blitzed a lot this game. You know, mm-hmm. they're bringing a lot of blitzes, whereas if you're just watching the football, just watching the quarterback drop back, you might not recognize what really is going on. You might not recognize that the cornerback, has that a certain cornerback just allowed, you know, five straight completions and he's getting torched. And so I think there's the more you can sort of step back and look at the whole field. The, I think the game becomes more fun to watch that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think the per- production crews could probably help us with that if they would give, you know, because it's hard to do right. real time. If they could spend more of the replay showing, and they do some of that, mm-hmm. but if they could spend more kind of taking our attention away from the ball. Hey, we've only got a couple of minutes, but we know that you cover some college football, and of course you come from Notre Dame. I was just saying in the, in the opening segment of the show that Notre Dame is probably the team that most jumps out of our analytics, the Massey Peabody analytics. Because they've been irrelevant for a couple of years, and now we have them in our top ten, our preseason top ten. What can you tell us about the Irish this year? Are they legit? I think they have a real defense for the first time in a while. I think it's been there uh, ever since the you know the debacle in the national championship game. Defense has really been their downfall. 
Uh, but I think they have the real defense. The only thing is this year they don't really have a quarterback. Uh, Brandon Wimbush can't – he, for the second half of last year, I've never seen a quarterback just completely lose the ability to not only just you know throw accurately, he wasn't even throwing spirals. I don't think he threw like a single one the last like four games of the season. So really? That was worrisome. <laughs> now, got, this guy was a – he was an Elite 11 quarterback. He was even yep. one of the top of the Elite 11 quarterbacks coming out of high school. He got to sit a couple years behind some other guys. What? Why is it? Why? Why are you seeing this level of performance from him? It was. It was really weird. Like it was. I think it happened around the Miami game. He just had a couple of bad throws, and then he stopped throwing spirals. He just was. He had the like. It's almost like the golfer. yips or something yeah, like that. Yeah, like, like a, a pitcher that can't much. throw to first. Yep, that's, that's what awful. it seemed like because. He was. He looks. You know. I thought. I thought they were a legitimate. You know, national title contender with him early on in the season with how good he is with his leg. You know, he's, he's basically a running back with how well he can run and he could throw the ball down the field somewhat accurately. But then, like I said, he just stopped throwing spirals, which was wow. crazy to see, and that's why wow. they tanked it down the stretch. But I do think if he has that, any sort of bounce back, plays anywhere close to where he did the first half, he'll be. It'll be a top ten sort of team. Well, we we clearly need to get a new variable into our model. Quarterback can't throw spirals. <laughs> Good lord! Good lord! Dump the model then. Yeah. Exactly. We should watch some football, man. Get out of the spreadsheet. Your quarterback can't throw spirals. All right. What else in college football? What else are you paying attention? Give us one more storyline for the season. One more storyline for the season. I think it's just. Alabama once again. Oh come on! They, like no, Mike. I think it's so interesting if they the way they just reload with talent. If they can, I think they're on the precipice. I mean, if they have not already done something that we just not even come close to seeing in college football, I think they've been something like ranked number one in a in a poll for seven straight years, which is just they have been just at or near the top of college football for a length of time that I don't think we've seen before, and especially in the modern era to do it the way they have. And if they can reload after, you know, sort of benching their quarterback, benching their quarterback, mass championship game now switching quarterbacks, uh, it just is incredible how much talent they have run through uh, over these years. Right, right. Well, they do have a little competition in the SEC finally with Georgia. Obviously gave them a run for their money last year. They're loaded mm. again this year, so um, and it's good to at least they've got a little bit of counterbalance down there. Listen, Mike, we'll let you go. Appreciate your taking time to talk with us today from Cincinnati and uh, we'll, we'll be following your work. We love it. We wish you the best with it. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, guys. You bet. That was Mike Renner. He's senior analyst at Pro Football Focus. Those guys provide critical data to all the NFL teams and some of the college football teams. We've talked to a number of people from PFF over the years, but that's our first time with Mike. That is three-quarters of the show. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Kate Massey hosting this morning with Audie Weiner and Shane Jensen. You can join the conversation. Give us a shout, 1-844-942-7866. Open lines the next half hour. Open conversation, 944, I mean, 844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, or add us on Twitter. Our handle is at WMoneyBall. We are just off the phone with Mike Renner talking mostly pro football. Mike is an analyst with Pro Football Focus Enjoyed that conversation. I think he's the first official guest of the season as we roll into football. We're going to hit it hard next week, Colin. Mostly college football for two hours. Kind of a preview show as we begin the 
first week. There are going to be some games this weekend. We've got to dial up. What's the schedule? We've got some sneaky little college you football games. so excited. <laughs> yeah. It's been it's six months, Adi. There, are, there is at least one or two uh, week one matchups. I remember just talking about this a couple weeks Matt, ago Matt that is, are fairly consequential. Maddie's going to throw them our way. Hey, I thought the conversation about rating units was really interesting because yeah. they're, they're asking the question, which is really important for NFL teams, that no one has a good answer for. No one answers systematically, and that is, what's the relative value of each position on the roster? How should we invest yeah. our money, basically? Right. I mean, do you take a guard with the second pick in the draft? I'm guessing probably not, but yeah. what's the basis for that? So they, they, they say they found, they didn't give us details here, but in the defensive secondary, the, the, there are positive interactions between the cornerbacks and the safeties. And the critical bit is that your cornerbacks are your exceptional players back there. With the offensive line tackles and with the receivers, they said he didn't quite have the same analysis there, but he said there's an advantage to routes being more internal by the the interior guys, whether it's a slot or a tight end. So interesting, interesting analysis there. Um, Shane, that's all. Call it. That was that was mostly NFL. We've got a couple games left on the preseason front. We've got some Super Bowl odds floating around. What is it about NFL right now that's on your mind? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, right now it's really just about kind of the preseason injuries accumulating and how that kind of impacts seasons and stuff like that. I mean, what's I the think, biggest injury we've seen so far? Oh, oh, I guess um, I'm very Patriots focused. Patriots lost their first round draft pick uh, to an Achilles. Who was that? Uh, Isaiah Wynn. It's an offensive lineman. Offensive lineman. Achilles is bad, right? Achilles that's is not season? good. That's a season yeah, that's thing? A se- it's, uh, it's gone for that the season. That's so brutal. These guys, it's really, these poor guys. I mean, right, that's right. I mean, like, in, like every year it seems like there's – I mean, that's not exactly a, a big name across the NFL or anything like that. That's not like Tony first Romo round, going down. First-round draft pick. Yeah. And they yeah. Were, I mean, offensive linemen do come in yeah. as first-rounders and, and contribute yeah. straight away. They were probably counting on him as being a starter. Yeah. And it's a critical I mean, offensive yeah. line. I mean, I, I think he was supposed to kind of be a flex sort of like – you know, he wasn't necessarily – supposed to start but i mean like it's it, it, it's it's a big loss i mean i think one with kind of a little bit broader appeal is just some of the quarterback battles that are going on right now well one of the we've um, been interested in was injury influence so the bills lost mccarran yeah it, it doesn't seem to be as bad as they first thought but that's mm-hmm. going to put josh allen you know even increase his likelihood which is of starting. super interesting it yeah. is people yeah, yeah. thought he's probably not ready to start yeah that quick, yeah I, I think what's going on with the browns is really interesting between like mayfield, Tyrod and May- mayfield. how's tyrod playing I know Mayfield's getting all this love, but he's of course. Because I think Tyrod's, uh, as 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 usual, is playing capably. <laughs> you know that guy is a very capable quarterback. Mm-hmm. I think that's the right word for him. Um, the Jets, obviously, people are super excited about both the perform both yeah. um, Darnold and Bridgewater to the extent that like now people are like, oh, do the Jets try and you know trade Bridgewater away to some team? Right. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't. I, I mean. Again, we're. I'm not sure we've seen enough preseason performance nah, where they yeah, would yeah. want to do that necessarily. Of course, but. they're seeing the guys in, yeah. in practices. Well, they're seeing a lot more than we are. Mm-hmm. Let's let's look at the Super Bowl odds real quickly. So yeah. I'll just run down. I'm going to run down the top ten, and and you tell me what jumps out to you. So I'll give you numbers for a bit, and then we'll skip. Patriots at plus seven hundred. So audio tell me that's a one in six, which is something like twelve and a half percent. No, no, right? plus seven hundred is one in eight. I mean, I mean one in eight, which and is then it's a little percent. lower than that because of the juice. So okay, yeah. so it's actually something like eleven, eleven percent. Okay, that's lower than I might have thought for the. It pack. is considering they have a pretty easy schedule. I well, you know, it's not like about. there's well. 
I mean, in their division, they the NFL do. NFL schedules but, don't vary that much. Yeah, I mean, I, I, well, they don't have to play the Patriots. No. <laughs> they don't, but they do this have to play. That's a fair through, point. They'll have to go through the Steelers. They'll have to go through the Jaguars. They'll have to go through the whoever NFL else gets works really out. hard to balance. Yeah. Inevitably, yeah. they're not balanced, but there's so much more balance in college football, I can't. I can't be bothered to worry. I, I mean, schedule. like I, you know, it, it, it's pretty typical. I think that the Super Bowl, you know, that the participants in the Super Bowl are ranked one and two, and I think the yeah. Patriots are only placed higher than the Eagles just because of an. You know, we sort of look at the AFC and see it as prior last top teams in the AFC than we do in the NFC. Well, the odds bear that out. So the next three teams are all NFC teams. Mm-hmm. Eagles, are you not resulting? Eagles, Vikes, Rams. Eagles, Vikes, Rams are, and Eagles are plus eight fifty, so it's not that far below. Are these resulting? Yes, in the sense re- that the Eagles were under were the were the underdogs in the in the Super Bowl. They happen to have won. Does that make them the the favorite the next year? No, no. In fact, they're not. That they're was not. my observation, yeah, in part because of the strength of schedule, yeah. and and maybe maybe also um, there is still some you know if if somehow on equal ground, like maybe we'd still put the Patriots ahead of the Eagles because we maybe believe they're a slightly better team coming back. I don't I don't even know well, if that's the case. Well, what about but, downturn, but the strength of schedule, I, I think, kind of swamps that. <laughs> yeah. What about you know. the Foles-Wentz thing? Yeah. No, I mean, I that's... Mean, that's, an, a, that's an, Wentz a, might not make a, it to start. Legitimate question. Neither will Foles? Neither will Foles. No. Okay, so moving on down, we we said Pats equals Spikes, Rams, and then the first, the second AFC team is Steelers. Mm-hmm. Um, then Packs... Saints, so two more NFC. So what is that? That's six of the top yeah. eight or six of the top se- five of the top seven are NFC teams. Then Chargers, Falcons, Jaguars. Yeah. So anything surprising there to you, Shane? Um, I, mean, I, I guess not really that surprising. I'm a little surprised the Packers are that strong. I, I feel like they've really? been, yeah, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm not paying enough attention, but um, they haven't been that serious. They said that they've been like, hampered in various ways the last couple of years. I'm a, the Saints, just in general, I'm surprised that the Saints are as competitive as they have been. Yeah. They went pretty deep last well, year. I, I, I Drew Brees is like... Drew Brees is an amazing... Uh, that guy is he's ridiculous. An amazing, he's, he's an like, ridiculously he's like, good quarterback. He's the size of me and you, which is absurd. Yeah, and yeah, he's, you know, 40 yeah. years old, and he's still one yeah. of the absolute best quarterbacks in the NFL. Yes, no, that's right. I mean, and, and if you look at this guy's cumulative statistics, he is going to be the yeah, top number one, one quarterback... I think he's going to be a, a, clearly a top ten, yeah. you know, all around quarterback of all time, and one of the statistics leaders. Now, and by the way, I don't mean he's going to be the greatest quarterback of all yeah. time by his career, but he will have accumulated. I think like he will be number one in several cumulative measures by the end of his yeah, career. Yeah, yeah. I so don't want the Steelers to live up to this. So they're the fifth, oh, nobody the wants the Steelers to live up to this. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh. I mean, I just want them to go. Yeah, there. is it possible? Yeah, yeah. Am, I so, am I a bad person for feeling that way? Yeah. No, well, I mean, yeah, I, got, I guess for both bad something that. I'm missing. What's the the animosity towards the Steelers? Well, just because of Roethlisberger. I mean, or? also, I, I mean, I think we're so. I, you know, I obviously have um, a relative. I'm very open about my Patriots allegiance. Really? And so the Steelers are a natural no, the, rival the, there. I thought the Eagles um, were the rival. No, who's the, who's the number one rival of the Patriots? It's not the. Uh, I mean, well, I, I guess really historically, you'd probably say the Jets. I mean, you typically the yeah. division it's, rivals, it's, it's, but I mean, it's basically whoever the Patriots have had to play a lot yeah, so over was, the last twenty Colts, years. It was Colts for Colts a while, for a while Steelers. I mean, I, Giants, I, have, I have strong negative opinions towards. <laughs> well, the NFC East in general, I have strong negative opinions you towards. You can't really develop big rivalries across yeah. conferences. They usually yes. are within division. So, yeah. tell me this: what's a better rivalry in the NFL? 
lately, the last one. Now, let's just say mm-hmm. now, then the Steelers and Ravens. So for a while, that yes. was the best. No, one. no, that's right. The Steelers. That's There's right. There's more hatred. They're both good. They were both good teams for a while. They were within a division, so they, they, the games they mattered for, a great deal. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's might a great compete one. Compete with that. Oh, um, Cowboys Giants. Yeah, Cowboys Eagles. Cowboys Eagles. Cowboys Eagles. I mean, um, everybody in that division always hated the Cowboys. Always claimed them as the biggest rival. Yeah, that's right. I mean, how about out, AFC West had some like Kansas City, o- Oakland. Oakland, Kansas City has. I mean, again, it would be wonderful if those two teams were simultaneously yeah, relevant. That just that's really that gets in the way. That's of that. tough. Yeah. Um, Denver. That, that AFC West has some good. Denver Oakland is kind of yeah. a rivalry I've heard of. Again, I, I, again, it's it suffers from them not you know. And also, Seattle oh. San Francisco kind of had a thing. That's right? right. For a little while, they, especially when they both get good. Here's yeah. a good one. Green Bay, Minnesota. That is a great rivalry. And yeah. they're both pretty solid these yeah, days. Yeah, that one's so good. I mean, Green Bay, back both Green Bay, Chicago, and yeah. Green Bay, Minnesota that's are right. good rivalries. And hopefully, you yeah, know, this, this year at least, the Green Bay, Minnesota, that, that's that's probably going to be one of the more compelling compelling division races, good. we would guess. Right. Spot yeah. on. All right. So I've tracked down the few college games that are playing this yeah. week. Oh, this or is, Jacksonville, Houston. That'll be a barn burner, too. Oh, yeah. You know. Everybody, everybody's going to be at the edge of the seat to see who comes out of the AFC South. Well, you said Houston. Houston and you meant Tennessee. I said NFC. no. I mean, I meant I meant Houston. Oh, Houston, Houston, Jacksonville, Tennessee. We're all gonna be really on the yeah. Everybody's gonna be super excited to see who comes out of that, right? <laughs> hey, man, don't take us down. Don't take oh, us I'm down. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to take the energy level down there. Guys. Okay, so listen, I'm trying to give you some college games because yeah. we got real college football this weekend. I'm not saying it's big time college football, but it is real college football. We have a couple of. Games involving FBS, FCS teams. We're going to skip those. But we have two games that are both FBS teams. Hawaii, Colorado State. We're going to kick off our season with Hawaii, Colorado State on Saturday, 730. And then we have Wyoming, New Mexico State. So is that enough to get you fired up? Um, no, give us some content. I mean, I mean, short I answer. Think our, no. our listeners are really are, delighted. Are we going to? Uh, can uh, can can you tell me? No, we're not going to. We're not going to belabor that. We've got enough. What, yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah, Danielle. Is that one game in Hawaii? Could we get some nice no, scenery in, in the background well, of the stadium or Collins. something? Fort Collins is beautiful. Okay. In, it is in Fort Collins. All right. And the other one's in Las Cruces. I'm not sure that that's going to count, but we're going to try. All right. So rolling into the last segment. We're about to turn things over to Audie Weiner. It's Warden Moneyball's Over Under. What do you got, Audie? We got a bunch. We got MLB, we got NFL, and we got tennis. Why don't we do it in reverse order? Tennis. What do you think, my man? All right, so this is a good one. We got some talent at the top, and we've been seeing talent dominate at the top in tennis. So, point five. Over under on the number of U.S. Open titles for Djokovic and Nadal to come. That's right. Someone. So yeah. basically, you're like you're rooting future on future career. You get, no, no, no. In this, well, you could do it. I'm actually. I'm, I was even thinking about it. it in this US particular Open titles. titles going forward, but I think most of that money is on this year. This is this year. This this means this actually. Year. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make an Maddie, executive Maddie decision this year. This year. Okay. So oh. I think it's too easy to, to go over if it's going in the future. Right, right, right. So basically, so if you work the numbers, so just to get a little background, mm-hmm. uh, Djokovic is plus two fifty, so that puts them a little higher, about between point two and point two five, um, if you estimate using the the vig, yeah. and the dollar is plus three fifty, 
So that are puts they, him around those point the top two. two. Top two. Those are the, the top odds. two. Those are the top two. And Federer's at plus four fifty. So if you sum mm-hmm. up Djokovic and Nadal, making a little bit of adjustment, you're looking right around a half. So somebody pick. I'm taking the over, well. man. I think one of them wins. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna go with the field. Really? I'm going to take the the field too. I mean, oh. Djokovic. They look terrific, but I'm going with the field. It's uh, well, seems, I, mean, I, mean, like I a, thought you guys were one. the mantras that Del always Patro. like uh, you I'm, know. I, I thought you guys were always the sort of like oh every you know it's always the it's big always three those or big four. three so take two of the three you're yeah, right you're right you're now. right I did say that but uh, did you know De, right. Del Patro is number three in the world right now and he's been very competitive in the U.S. Open before yeah and I'm totally biased because I want him to win but I'm, yeah. I'm but taking Djokovic has destroyed and Nadal in the in the tournaments yeah, the, intermediate between the Wimbledon yeah, and the U.S. Open the thing Open. is Djokovic is really coming on strong he's he's, he's you guys have already. I'm, I'm working Major against the other side, <laughs> but, but I'm going to take the. Uh, I, I have to say, my general bias is to the field. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Um, because people to put there's too much weight concentrated at the top among the the public's attention. Yeah. No, and I agree. Excuse things, and that's certainly my case. My public but in attention tennis, is. T- but 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 Shane is right. In tennis, this has been the one exception. These these three characters in particular yeah. have just I mean, dominated. Depatro, man, I'm taking the field. Let's All right, go. I'm going with the field too. All right, let's walk backwards through the NFL. Speaking of Super Bowl, hmm. um, so actually, this is this is a future, I believe. Two point five Super Bowl appearances appearances in the future for well, it would have to be over and under Brady. Big Ben, Breeze, Manning, and Rodgers. They're all 36. Why are we including Manning in there? Well, I don't know. Come on. Well, I know it's Eli. (laughs) But still, come on. I mean, all right. All right, well, that's just a freebie. He's one of the all-time great quarterbacks. I'm going to turn to Cade first. Uh, uh, (laughs) I'm going to turn to Cade first because Shane went first last time. So 2.5. Brady, Big Ben, Breeze, Manning, Rogers just in the future. The so this is going to be a uh, this is going to be one that will not be resolved for a while. They don't so. have to win the thing; they just have to show mm-hmm. up. Just have to show. Oh, I'll take the over on that. There's a lot of ways for these guys. I've got. Yeah, I'll take the over on it. I mean, I mean, honestly, for the next couple of years, we yeah. might get two out of just Brady and Big Ben, right? I mean, probably not. I mean, I mean, you're talking about the two top favorites in the AFC, mm-hmm. and with Rogers and Breeze, you've got two of the top. Four favorites yeah. in the NFC. I mean, it's, it's a good over under because both all these guys are on the wrong side of the age curve, right? For sure. So, for sure. But I, if it's I, this I, year or I the do, next, I do you're think, looking at a, t- at a tough. Yeah, I want to hear from Kate first. Kate, what you, I said over. Oh, you're over. Yeah. Okay. And I, I mean, I guess mine's the same. Well, I'll just expand upon that. We're talking about probably the four best uh, quarterbacks in the NFL. You know, um, all right. Currently, I mean, maybe, maybe not Russell Wilson. Well, well, I think we know the case for the. uh, We know uh, the case uh, for the over. uh, I'm going to make the case for the under, and I'm going to do it based on blind, blind lack of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Age is a killer, and and this is a is it this is this is a killer. And I know we have Brady in there, and he's sucking up two in your spot, maybe three right there. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's hard for you to walk away from that, but I am going to walk away from Uh, it. No, I mean, I I get that. I, I mean, it's not just. So I'm going under. This Rogers, Rogers guy is pretty good too. I but. thought you were going to give us a good abstract. How many expected seasons yeah. for each of these guys? What's the probability they make this? It's Super Bowl low, and, and I also think that these guys. And remember, they have to play. So if they get injured or their team makes it, but they don't, that doesn't count. Oh yeah, no, no it says appearances. They got a jersey they, on. Okay, that and no, 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 they got to throw the ball. They, they got to throw <laughs> oh, the really? ball. You're changing the rules. <laughs> no, I'm not on changing us. the rules. You got to appear. You got to yeah, be in it. Matt said, Matt said, "Take a snap." He didn't say yeah. throw. Take a he snap. Said, take a All right, snap. take a snap. Uh, All right, okay. let's. We have a. We do have more football. Let's just jump to the to the uh, MLB. 
1.5, the World Series World Series appearances this year. I think we're talking this year. Yeah. For Red Sox, Astros, Cubs, Dodgers. So these were, excluding the Yankees, they're not in the top four. These were the say, top these, four. You, you have to get both of these guys in there. Two, you have to get both teams from that set of four in order to be over. In order to be over. It seems like a stretch. But it's, these were, yeah. other than the Yankees, who have an incredible gauntlet to run. Because they got to go through the Astros and the Red Sox. Well, not necessarily through the Astros. No, this is crazy. No, but either one or the other. They're going to have to. Or it, yeah. could be, it could be the A's. Who knows what's going to happen. I mean, the Cubs may not be in the playoffs. The Dodgers may not be in the playoffs. This yeah, is I'm, crazy. I'm, I'm this going, is crazy I'm town. going under on this This one. is crazy town. I, I, would, I think it's more interesting if we make it 1.0. Do you? One, I guess you can't, can you? Because you can't mm-hmm. put these rounds yet. I don't, I, you got to have to split. So yeah. you, otherwise, you have a tie. So our 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 bookie our bookmaker is usually better than this. You know what, what he's pointing out is what this is is a discretization problem. Yeah. The problem is is that 1.0 is impossible because yeah, you got to split it. Really where 0.5 you want it to be. is is too is too low and 1.5 is too high. So it's really an in, it's a, I, really an I impossibility. I the 0.5 is more interesting than 1.5. Oh, yeah. So you, you you think that there's a, uh, a all right. So a, you, okay. there's a better okay. chance that none of these teams that I'm going to revise it to point five. zero or two. That's yeah. the, which do you want zero or two? That's the more interesting question. Yeah, you have to choose one. Well, I'm going over the point five. Easy, easy. Huh? Oh, so I yeah. guess you'd be choosing two, and that's zero or two. I, I'm taking no, the under. No, I'm actually. I don't. I think it's a, a better bet than you think. I think one one point oh is. I think the max is the is the modal. I'm just trying to compare the two. Yeah, 1. No, 5 1. 5. 1.0 is modal, and I, I think one point five is lower. I mean, two is lower probability than zero. Than zero. I'm going under. So you're going under point five, yeah. and I'm going to go over point five, and you're going under over. Yeah, I think by I think it's going to be a Diamondbacks beating the Yankees in the World Series. So up, um, so we reset it to point yeah. five. No. Yeah, we reset it to 0.5. Okay, we reset did? it to 0.5. We did. We, I made an executive decision here on the fly. I reset to 0.5. What's going to be? Oh, over oh uh, in that case, over. You're over, oh, I'm yeah, over, and you're they, under. They, they, okay, no, good. I didn't say I'm under. Oh, you, oh you're not? No, no, no. Okay. I'm just less under than I was less over under on the other yeah. one. All right, so what's your call? I'm more under than I was so you're going, over. Are we over. going triple over? Yeah, it's, boy, it's a bad are. question. Yeah, it's a bad question. Yeah. All right, here's one that I like, because I like I like things we can decide at the end of the end of the season, and that it... It's something that that harkens back to last year. The number of offensive rook, offensive rookies of the year among the group of Barkley, Mayfield, Rosen, the over under is point five. So will one of these three win the rookie of the year, offensive rookie of the year? Barkley, Mayfield, Rosen. So it's a that's an interesting question because I mean how, we got a lot of rookies. Yeah, I, I, I guess I don't, it's, 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 about, it's I don't know field. enough about the field. <laughs> just of give rookies. me give me a sense yeah. here. Where these three were the number one and number what? And the, these are these three number were all one, in the top uh, five, right? Three. No, Rosen no. was not. Rosen dropped no, a little low. Mayfield Rosen, and Barkley were both in the top five. Yeah, and Rosen was eight or so, something like that. We don't even know if Rosen's going to start. He's probably not going to start. Mayfield's not going to start in the beginning, probably. Um, if he, you're not going to win rookie of the year playing for the Browns, really. I don't think so. Saquon Barkley, he's a running back. He could get injured in a heartbeat. I've got another 100 rookies I could have money on. Oh, dude, you've talked me into the under here. I'm going to take the field, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, is- I mean, I, I, again, without knowing, uh, yeah, I, I feel like rookie of the year is, is – this is a good question. Is it it's typically – It's a great question. It's is, a great question. Is, uh, is like, is. the number one – I'm just soaking up the information two, Are the here. top two rookies by draft rank – Usually, the winners of the Rookie of the Year. 
That's a great question. Yeah. I don't but, think... But this is classic psychology yeah. because there's this huge anonymous field. Yeah. But we're focusing on these three that we've unpacked, yeah. that we all know, and all the attention, and, and therefore too much mass. Who usually there. wins the Rookie of the Year? What position? I, we don't have... I don't have the... I don't know the... I don't have no the data. Damn, we, we are clueless here. We need to get analysis of Rookie of the Year here. It's probably... When, when you have a quarterback that starts a bunch of games and plays okay, it's probably that guy. Probably. I do think yeah. so. I bet there are some running backs that get it. But still, I've got a big field here. I'm taking the field, which means I'm going under. We need quick answers because we've got to wrap up. Under. Oh, I hate to be under, but that seems to be the so only route. Yeah. Yeah, no like divergence in our forecast. You like the field. All I right. do like the field. All right, guys. Appreciate it. That's been another Wharton Moneyball. From Kate Massey, from Audie Weiner, from Shane Jensen, from the in absentia Eric Bradlow. Thanks for listening. Thank you to Danielle Bruno. Holding down the soundboard, as always, and Maddie Datz, our fearless leader. We will be back. We're back every Wednesday morning. We're going to do a college football preview show next week. Come back and join us. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.